Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? Booster Boy and Booster Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, Hitchick and Arisia and Woozy Winks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC Who's Who. Hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of Who's Who, the definitive podcast of the DC Universe, a proud member of the Fire and Water family of podcasts. I'm one of your hosts, the Irredeemable Shag from FirestormFan.com. Along with me, as always, is my esteemed co-host Rob Kelly from the AquamanShrine.net. How you doing, buddy? It's the third week in a row with no Aquaman or Firestorm content. I think that's pretty brave for an Aquaman and Firestorm podcast. <laughs> well, this one does actually have some Firestorm characters. Yeah, I'm, 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 I, I, I lied a little for the joke, but... but. <laughs> yeah, but it's uh, for the most part, these have been Aquaman and Firestorm free weeks, so which means our ratings should be up. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, folks, thanks uh, for coming back again to another episode uh, covering Who's Who, the definitive directory of the DC Universe. We are... We are sailing to the end here. This is volume XXIV. If you Roman numerally challenge folks, that's 24. And there's only 26 issues in this volume. So uh, we're almost uh, ready to hit those updates. What do you think, man? It's exciting. It's exciting to to wrap up the first inclination. In, what's the word? I'm looking, incarnation of this series. And then we can move on to the other 97 versions. That right. We have today. Uh, update 97. Update. Or update 87. 88. The annuals, the loose leaf, the Star Trek, the Legion, the Impact, the Who's Who, and Rob's, you know, family, and you know all that. So, <laughs> cousin Fred. But anyway, uh, before we get any further, though, we need to take a moment to thank our sponsor. Uh, Who's Who podcast is sponsored in part by In Stock Trades. In Stock Trades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off. We free shipping for orders of $50 or more. What you got, buddy? Uh, well, we've already recommended this book, I think, maybe even once or twice before, uh, but it's Mystery in Space, the Pulp Fiction Library uh, book uh, from DC. And I'm, do- I'm recommending this because it is the only book that, as far as I know, has ever reprinted any stories featuring Ultra the Multi-Alien, who was covered in this book. It's one of my favorite characters. <laughs> the writers are Edmund Hamilton, Gardner Fox, Len Wein, Paul Levitz, uh, others, artists Jack Kirby, Frank Frazetta, Joe Kubert, Alex Toth, <laughs> cover artist Mitch O'Connell – not the senator, Mitch McConnell, the artist, Mitch O'Connell. <laughs> the page count is 206. Uh, it features reprints starring Tommy Tomorrow, Space Cabby, Captain Comet, Space Ranger, Star Hawkins, Adam Strange, the aforementioned Ultra the Multi-Alien, and the Atomic Knights. So much fun. Normal price is $19.95. In-stock trade price is $11.57. That is 42% off. Pick up this book. It, there, there should be multiple volumes of this series, but as long as there's just this one, pick it up because – this is some great, great fun material. Dude, it's got Space Cabby, Tommy Tomorrow, and Ultra, and I don't own this thing? How, what is up with that? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm preparing an order for Instock Trades, actually, for a couple different people for Christmas presents. And if I don't get to over 50, I'm just going to throw this in to get, get me over the top. Because it's like, <laughs> yeah, I should own this. I don't know why I don't own this yet. There you go. I've been, I've been like, whenever we do these shows, I have like a little list. I, I jot down ones where I'm like, I think I'm going to get that one. But anyway, that one's, that one's on the list. All right, folks, mine is one of those where you're going to be like... <laughs> 
whatever. That's like the most common book out there. And you're going to think, I already have it or whatever. But if you don't, if you, I'm, I'm sure you've read this, okay? And I'm going to get some kind of comment, snarky comment from Frank where he's going to be like, oh, you picked an easy one, Shag. But whatever. Uh, Batman Dark Knight Returns. Okay? Yeah, I know. You've already read it. Yeah, I know you've heard it. But do you own it? Did you read your friend's copy? You know, whatever. Or do you just have a reprint or the single issues, whatever? Is it time for a new version? Because I know mine's falling apart, quite honestly, because I've read it several times. The reason why I picked Dark Knight Returns, because we're going to talk about Two-Face in this episode. And when we talk about Two-Face, we're going to realize that there's a huge plot point in Dark Knight Returns that had already been done that uh, either Frank Miller wasn't aware of or that he totally stole. So we'll bring that up when we get to Two-Face. But obviously, written by Frank Miller, drawn by Frank Miller, inks by Klaus Janssen, uh, 224 pages, full color, Normally goes for nineteen ninety nine. You can get this sucker for eleven dollars and fifty nine cents. Oh, that's another reason. Maybe you've only been able to find some like fancy forty dollar hardcover version or something. Here's an eleven dollar and fifty nine cent soft cover for forty two percent off. Pick it up in stock trades. Get it now. So again, folks, our thanks to InStockTrades.com, your best source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to forty two percent off with free shipping of orders fifty dollars or more. Sweet. And again, uh, come next year, every in-stock trades thing I do will just simply be the Blue Devil uh, Showcase Edition. So just wait for that. All right, as I mentioned, we're covering volume number 24 of this series. And, um, you know, just to give you a real quick recap, if this happens to be your first episode of the se- of listening to the podcast, as we go through Who's Who, we're going to go page by page covering each character. Most characters get their own page, and there's a color image of them in the foreground. In the background, there's a single color image that is called a surprint, and the surprint usually shows them uh, you know, in action, demonstrating their powers, their origin. usually shows them without a mask on their face, which, by the way, we're going to talk about that this episode. And um, our goal is to go through this sort of to cover this in such a way that you don't necessarily have to have the comic in front of you. You know, certainly if you've got a copy at home, bust it out, sit down with a, you know, a nice snifter of cognac by the fire, enjoy the podcast. But if you're in your car, please don't feel like you need to look at this. Uh, we'll post about 10 to 12 of these, maybe up to 15, whatever, up on our Tumblr. And Rob, what's that Tumblr address? Fireandwaterpodcast.tumblr.com. There you go. So, um, and if you're going to be talking about this on the social medias, if you feel like live tweeting about, um, you know, uh, Tomahawks Rangers, please feel free to use the hashtag PoundFWPodcast. That's PoundFWPodcast. That way all of us uh, Who's Who fans can find each other and argue the uh, merits of Ultraman. And I don't mean the one that's from the Japanese movies. So, All right. So... For, right out of the gate here, cover by, uh, this is a new, we haven't had an Eduardo Barreto cover yet, have we? No. I, well, let's first just kind of describe it. Uh, on the, the right-facing page, so the, kind, the one that basically sitting on the shelf, you're really, your feature characters are Tomahawk, Ultraman, and Trigon, I would say. And I would say, Ul- what's Ultra that? Ultra Boy. Ultra Boy, thank you. Ultra Boy, yes. And I would say that's probably the right people to put on the cover. Um, two faces featured very prominently on the back. Um, but other than that, those are the right guys, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I mean, it, DC was going to stick to its no villains rule, my, except for the Joker. Um, they basically did not feature villains as the main character. I would argue Two-Face is by far the most re- famous character here. But if you're going to do the no villains, then Ultra Boy is a perfectly good, except like he was in one of the you know more famous members of the Legion. And Legion was one of DC's best-selling books. Right, and, and Batman... As hard as it is to believe right now, wasn't 
insanely hot. I mean, it was it was it was, it was warming up again. But Batman, you know, in the early '80s, wasn't like a crazy hot selling book. Firestorm outsold it at different times. Yeah, I mean that's true. Two Face had not been ending the movies. He had never been in a TV show. But yeah, he was not as as sort of pop culturally known as he was not too long after. So yeah, maybe there's an argument there that Two Face didn't really qualify. So I mean, he certainly was well known. But either way, okay. So Eduardo Barreto cover. Um, I I love the art. I love the way every character looks. They're just not interacting, really. Did you notice that? Yeah, I yeah I see what you're saying. And they're kind of all going in the same direction, and they're all in the same physical space. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually like this cover quite a bit because I like Eduardo Barreto's work. I oh, think yeah. he's a very solid guy. He was one of the few guys that um, Warner Brothers tapped to do licensing art when mm-hmm. they weren't hiring, you know who. Um, <laughs> so uh, praise be his name. Praise be his name. <laughs> um, so I think this is a really nice cover. I agree that yeah, they're not really interacting with one another the way like Perez had them interacting. Um, but short of that, I, I do like that they all are sharing the same physical space. I, I like that more than those sort of uh, the, the you know the the ones that the way that Byrne did his and the way even Perez did a couple of them where they were all like in weird spatial relations. Here, everybody's in the same place. Yeah, there, there's there is one set of interaction which is hilarious, hilarious. Where tsunami's creating a wave, and Trickster's riding a surfboard on it, and Turtle Man is holding on for dear life, which yeah. just cracks yeah. me up. That's funny. Now, uh, as we get into the comments, I notice this myself. So, but there is a comment on here that I didn't see until later. Uh, Thea, I think is her name. Yeah, one of the um, Titans, Titans of myth. myth. She is featured fairly prominently on this cover. And she was featured, you know, on the previous cover. Yes, because she got her own listing. That's yeah. right. So she is one of the few characters that sort of slipped in there by accident and getting uh, two, I think, um, Duplicate Boy, I think, was the other one who, who made his way into two covers. So That's a fun idea. Okay, yeah. yeah. That, that was funny, but anyway. And, you know, I got, I got another beef with this issue, like with this cover. Well, one cool aspect is Trigon's hand is coming around and grabbing the listing of all the characters, and he's actually mm-hmm. covering the page numbers, mm-hmm. which is kind of cool, sort of like he's holding on to it. But my issue is, you know, his nails are really ragged. And, like, if I get the slightest, you know, rough nail, I'm going nuts. i got to find a nail file because it's snagging on sweaters, it's grabbing, you know, my silk pajamas or, you know, whatever. And here, I mean, that may, that's got to be driving him nuts. Maybe he can't find a nail file in his size. I'm not sure. Now, I, I do like, you know, Beretta is sort of like the third-tier Perez guy, if you think from a Titan sort of perspective, because, you know, it's George Perez, and then he sort of gets replaced by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name. name, and then after they, Beretta takes over, right? And that the 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 order of Titans artists, if I remember right? I, I guess so. Yeah, it seems fair. And if you look at this drawing, you really see it, because those are Perez-Rocky, you know, protrudences or whatever, those rock bridges. That's a Perez yeah. rock bridge. I mean, come yeah. on. Perez is well known for his rocks. <laughs> So, you gonna wake up anytime soon, there, buddy? What do you? <laughs> not even sure you've shown up yet. I think I'm talking to a Rob robot. <laughs> Does not compute. All right, there it is. Okay. Beep boop. <laughs> All right. Going inside. I don't really have anything to say about the letters. They're really kind of normal. You know, they're just like questions and answers. There's a Blue Devil reference, which I love, but it, well, there, there's not a lot there. There is one that I enjoy from Todd Smuts, the great named Todd Smuts, where he <laughs> mentions, um, why are so many unknown artists such as Will Mignot, June Brigney, and Aimee Hernandez and others drawing entries? I just love that very 
superhero centric worldview that it's like if I don't know them, they're unknown. You know, <laughs> once you get this Pablo Picasso guy to do a listing, who's ever heard of him? And it took the editor to kind of, uh, you know, kind of hit back at him a little and he goes, they're not unknown artists. They just work elsewhere. You know, it's like, yeah, you know, there are other comics outside of D.C., you little shit. So, you know, you ignorant slut. It's not unknown. (laughs) You know, so that was that was sort of fun. And, you know, and then they mentioned here that part of the reason they wanted to do this was to get people who didn't normally do D.C. work to do D.C. work, which is one of the things I love about this series. So, you know. Yeah, I, I was glad that they sort of took the time to point that out to some of the more DC-centric fans. Of like, You mean this Smuts guy? <laughs> yes. Such a Smuts. Yes, he is. The appropriately named Todd Smuts. He's probably listening at home crying. Um, you know, I didn't, I didn't, maybe this was in previous issues, but I didn't notice that there's a guy, there's a researcher, and it's not Peter Sanderson, it's, uh, ta- it's uh, Art Young. Art Young. I have no idea who that is. Nope, me neither. Right. Okay, first up, first entry, Tim Trench. Private Investigator. Really interesting one. Uh, art by Sandy Plunkett and P. Craig Russell. And uh, he is a P.I., straight-up human P.I., nothing fancy about him. He appeared in some Wonder Woman issues. In fact, I looked it up. He only had really five appearances prior to this entry, and it was in sort of two runs. He was like in a three-issue run and a two-issue run. And uh, he, uh, well, he's just kind of a straight-up P.I. Now, I have to say, I, I'm pretty impressed with the art, the Sandy Plunkett and P. Craig Russell art. I, I love it. The design, especially in the serpent, is gorgeous. The way he's got the desk, and it almost looks like the desk is dripping as a design effect. And the, yeah, the wood grain is sort of cut at odd angles. Yep, and the, the coffee's smoking, and he's at his desk, and in the background he's punching somebody, and there's like a, a weird sort of like a flagpole wrapped around there or something. I can't tell by the tip end of that circle that's uh, around his close-up of his face. And then, you know, his image in the front, he's, you know, this disheveled P.I., his face is in shadows, things like that. It looks really, really nice. Yeah, I think it's a great listing. I mean, I don't I, – this this listing feels a little like um, – does he really deserve his own listing here? It's almost no. like we want I, I feel like the DC editors decided, you know, we need to have more Wonder Woman characters represented. So let's pluck every character that was in Wonder Woman and give them their listing. That said, it's a great piece. And I Cindy Plunkett and P. Craig Russell were not people that did a lot of stuff for DC. So here we are, right out of the gate. You know, great example of what we were just talking about of getting somebody that was sort of unusual for DC and getting the dude to do a DC listing. So I think it's great. Yeah, Sandy Plunkett pretty much was known at this point for doing some Marvel Universe and um, Who's Who, and that's it. So I actually I sat there, I'm like, wow, and I thought, you know, that's kind of a weird team. Sandy Plunkett and Pete Craig Russell, I'm like, I wonder I wonder if they were maybe, maybe they were dating at this point or something, you know, if Sandy and, and Craig were dating, and then I looked it up. Oh, Sandy's a guy. Um, well, I, I didn't know that, so I had no idea. That didn't mean they weren't dating. <laughs> I suppose that's true, but either way, I had no idea. So, Oh, but I forgot to mention, there's like a little P.I. shield down here with a T.T. on it. Uh, do you see that? In the bottom yes. left? That's so cute. Or maybe I like his, his logo. The T in his name is a gun. Firing yes, a that is a very slick too. Now, I didn't really go in the entry. I mean, basically, yes, he's a Wonder Woman character, and it's from the white-suited white, white suited Diana Prince era. And it gets mixed up with Dr. Cyber a little bit in here. But he's, he's essentially, at the end of the day, he's just a PI. Now, there is some very flowery language in here, which makes me wonder if one of the people who wrote Who's Who wrote this entry. Let's see. Um, 
Tim Trench never went in for fancy things like martial arts. As he said, I put my faith in a right cross and a lead pill. He's a tough man in a scrap, being well-muscled and quick on his feet as well as tough. He favors a uh, 357, blah, blah, blah. And he goes on. Um, <laughs> it's just, you know, he plied his trade quietly over the years. His cases have been largely successful, and he managed to earn a rep- respectable living. You know, it's just the way it's sort of... And I'm not picking out the best entries. I should have, like, sort of earmarked the actual paragraphs. But the entry does have some flowery language. It makes me go, I wonder if the writer who wrote those issues had something to do with this. So, you know, there's always those entries that sort of stand out in mm-hmm. that way. Anyway, um, nice one. I, I like it. It's a good way to start the entry, or start the book, because it gives you sort of a, a very, uh, you know, unknown character. And yet it's a nice entry. So, And also, it's quite possible, since they just added two additional issues. This was originally supposed to be the final issue of Who's Who. When Who's Who launched... This was to be the final issue. So it could be that they've sort of got themselves to the end of the expanded issues, and they're just trying to fill pages at this point. You know? Could be the Possibly. case. So. All righty. Next up, Titano. Do you say Titano or do you say Titano? I would always say Titano, but I don't know how to say Modoc, so what do I know? <laughs> True that. Uh, by John Byrne. So uh, he's a giant gorilla. Or no, he's a giant monkey. Chimpanzee? He's a, he's a big ape of some sort. A, a, yeah. Okay. He says performing chimp, so yeah. Okay. Ch- giant chimpanzee. And the the thing that jumped out at me immediately as I'm reading, I'm like, okay, he's a giant chimp, blah, blah, blah. Base of operations. A planet in the Ashtar sun system. Well, what? You know, and then as you keep reading, you find out he's, he's simply a chimpanzee who got transformed to be very large. And he's a Superman villain. And it's interesting, as you read this entry, they make it very clear that um, – well, I guess they, well, either way, I'm getting all turned around here. But they don't refer to Superman 1 or Superman 2 like they've done in every other issue of Who's Who. You know, they always said, see Superman 1 or see Superman 2 or whatever. They don't make that reference this time. So you know that they're now sort of focusing on a, a single solitary version of Superman. And is it – oh, it's not in here, is it? Okay, it's in the back. I'm sorry. Yeah, where they mention that he is he that yeah. I mean, we're jumping ahead, but in the in the that back inside cover where they talk about where the characters are appearing, they mention that this Titano is basically out of continuity. Yeah, Titano is is now but a fond memory from Superman stories of the past. Right. That's why I was getting myself a little turned around a second ago. I was trying to find it in here. I'm like, wait a minute, where'd it go? So, which um, is funny because they brought him back into the DCU like a year after this. Was it? Was it even a year? I mean, it was really. May not early. even. It was the first Superman annual. Yeah, it was really early into yeah. Burns' run. So, and it's neat that they got burned to draw this. I mean, he was the current uh, Superman artist at this point. So, it's just funny. There's a good. There's like a, a good bit in here that sort of sums up uh, Bronze Age Superman. You you like to point out fun Bronze Age Superman lines. There's here where um they're talking about where he fights Titano, and da, 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 da. oh, I gotta find it. He he flings tight. He hurls Titano into the prehistoric past. It's just a random line. It's not even like no context around it. Ah, here we go. Oh, here you go. Uh, could hurl him into the prehistoric past where he'd be among other giant creatures. It's like <laughs> Superman just has that power. Where he he just, just do anything, right? Like is he done with a beer can? He just throws it into the prehistoric <laughs> past. Ah, I'm just getting rid of this. So anyway, it's um fun entry, but the art is very strange. Is is Titano always known for being like a real like a uh, fatty? Like, he looks like um, uh, Solomon Grundy from that cover a few issues a back. Bit. Yeah, I, yeah, I guess it's just trying to give him some sort of apish proportions kind of thing. Some weird girth. And then they refer to his K-Vision. K-Vision. Because, you know, you got to have K-Vision. And well, we see him using it in the Serpent. He's blasting Superman. Yeah. 
It's not my favorite entry. I'll be honest. I'm trying to be upbeat about it, but I'm kind of eh. You? I, I I actually like it because it's I just it's burn having fun with this thing that I mean he took a lot of crap for strip mining you know for like not strip mining for for stripping back the D, you know the Superman universe and here he is paying homage to one of the more goofier elements so I like it yeah I think it's a lot of fun fair enough next entry Titans of Myth by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez praise be praise his name. Really nice entry. I this this is a section of the Titans that typically bores me to tears, all the Donna Troy origin stuff. But they did a really nice job of mixing mythology and superhero history together. As you read this entry, it's written really well. It flows nicely. You see the two mesh very cleanly together. I've always thought mythology is just old school comic books. I mean, if you really mythology and superheroes have a lot in common anyway. And it talks about Thea, as we mentioned at the front. You know, she is Lilith's mom. They talk a lot about Donna Troy. And it even has a line in here at the end where it says, Notable among them is uh, Aeptus's son, Atlas, who often lends his incredible stamina to the world's mightiest mortal, Captain Marvel. So this is them starting to work their way into working Shazam into the you know post-crisis universe with everyone else. So it's, it's a pretty entry. looks very nice. He is, to me, this guy, JLGL, is such a master of body language. Uh, we've seen so many entries, and we'll see some in this issue, where the body language is so boring. Mm-hmm. But he manages – I mean, first of all, he's cramming in 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 characters in a tiny space. Yep. But they've, they're all clearly delineated, and they're all doing something kind of different. You know, I mean – uh, the uh, Phoebe and Sayus are sort of holding, not holding hands, but they're touching one another mm-hmm. in a sort of very friendly manner. Then you've got, uh, what's her name? I don't even know how you say her name. Titus? Traitress? I don't even know. But the girl who's sitting down, she's sitting cross-legged in a kind of like... Uh, the water girl? Fun, huh? The water girl? The water girl, yeah, yeah. in sort of a fun... Po- it's just, he breathes so much life into such tiny spaces and gives everybody a distinct little piece of business to do. The, it, 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 I, it just, I'm just so continually impressed by this guy, and these listings are part of the reason why. And he just gets so much done with, with so little space. Yeah. Well, Phoebe's is probably the most telling. I mean, her shoulders are shrugged over. She's leaning forward. Her hands are crossed. She's, she looks nervous. You know, it just, it's great body language. You're absolutely right. I'm glad you pointed that out. And the characters all look great. They look very distinctive. I mean, you get 12 normal, non-super people, and even uncolored, they all look distinctly different. You know, even if this was just in black and white and you couldn't tell that some have yep. red hair and some have green hair and whatever, they still would look very distinctly different, which is pretty yep. impressive. So, way to go. We, what's the acronym? So, uh, J-L-G-L-P... T-B-H-N. Now, we got called out, by the way, by Aaron, uh, Aaron Mott Bias. He says it should be praised be his name. Past tense. Yes. We had a whole argument about that, but uh, that's all right. He's wrong. Oh, so were we sticking with praise then? I just need I'm to... I'm sticking with praise. I mean, he's not wrong. It's just... I understand that grammatically it's not correct, but I was going for a particular kind of churchy patois that I think you get at by using praise be his name, not praised be his name. So it's more just kind of in the spirit of it. That's why I posted the link to the Bob Dylan song, uh, It Ain't Me, Babe, because ain't is not a word, but yet the song doesn't work if you're using other kind of words. So that's kind of what I was going for. How funny. By the way, for those of you who are um, Who's Who podcast aficionados, we're 24 minutes in, and I realized I have forgotten something important, so I'm going to say it now. This issue, um, by the way, is cover dated February 1987, and uh, so if you want to see it, 
and get a fresh copy and get that nice sniffy sniff off the, the ink, printer's ink. Don't go back to February 87 because it'll be three months old by then, folks. Take your DeLorean and go back to November 20th, 1986, right before Thanksgiving. Don't spill your gravy and mashed potatoes on it, folks. November 20th, 1986, and that will get you the new copy. Thanks to Mike's Amazing World of Comics for that date information. And there's a reason I remember that, because I made two notes at the top of the page, and this is about to hit the second one, which made me realize I missed that one, which is, we're going to talk about TNT and Dan the Dynamite! They are wearing masks in this, uh, on this entry, folks. And by the way, this entire book only has three pages of characters with masks, and this is the only one that's even remotely effective. The others are not even masks. They just happen to be technically masks, but aren't effective. So, interesting that in a, in a superhero book, there's only three masks in the whole thing. So, TNT and Dan the Dynamite are Golden Age characters. They have very Golden Age costumes. So it's oh yeah. I mean, the TNT has got the green bodysuit with, and, and notice the thing here: green bodysuit, blue trunks, blue cowl, blue boots. Whereas Dan has a blue bodysuit with green trunks and green boots and green cowl. So they just flip-flop the colors. They work well together as a pair. They're both wearing red gloves, and they're both wearing these red sort of domino masks. And, and the cowl is sort of like a full-covered hair cowl, and, and all that's really exposed is their forehead and, like, the nose-mouth area. So, And uh, it is your typical Golden Age, you know, adult hero and teenage sidekick. It's uh, The art here by is Romeo Tengal, which is sort of interesting in that he is really normally an inker. Yeah, so yeah. He, he's not known for doing a lot of uh, penciling work, so it's interesting. And the only thing that's sort of weird about this is is the relationship. It's it's a teacher and a student, and if you read the entry, you start to get kind of a funky vibe. Like this is making me a little uncomfortable. So I think if they were to retell their origin, they would probably sanitize this a bit more, wouldn't you say? I think they should make a TNT and Dana Dynamite movie and cast Brian Cranston and Aaron Paul in the roles. <laughs> well, I think they've done an ambiguously gay duo cartoon, which pretty much looks like these guys, except with caves. So, or without caves. So, but, uh, see, I, I never watched Breaking Bad, so I can't. Uh, well, see, they're, they're teacher and pupil in that show. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, I knew that much. Okay, gotcha. So, the, the, the gist of it is they did all these experiments with chemicals. And somehow through these experiments, they have become charged with energy. And when they touch each other, they gain some extra – I know. I, there's so many things wrong with this. And I think they discovered it while they were working late at night too, if I remember right. But they feel much stronger when they touch each other. And – oh, jeez. So one of them have been charged not negative. One of them have been charged positive. And they wear these rings that allow them to tap their rings together and they gain their powers. And sometimes it's for a few minutes. Sometimes it's for a half hour. And they can press them their rings together again to, to get re-energized. And uh, they go out and, you know, and they kick all the butt all over the place. Now, there's some funky stuff here. Apparently, as time went by, their powers grew so that if they touched, there was a devastating explosion. And TNT, the adult, went off to the bottle city of Candor, where Dan the Dynamite went to live in a special chamber in Atlantis. Like, what? <laughs> well, what? But then it goes in to say that um, history has been changed since Crisis on Infinite Earth, so it's unclear what happened to them after 1943. And that's why we can't have the crisis. Because right. it got rid of all that fun stuff. Right, because that's why. Now, what getting rid of the what the crisis did do for us was it then put Dan the Dynamite into Young All Stars, which we will never ever uh, thank them enough for. So, <laughs> Young, no, I love Young All Stars. I love me some Young All Stars. In fact, here 
they make no interest. They make this issue is interesting. It has two characters from the Young All Stars in it. It has Dan the Dynamite and Tsunami. And in the back of the book, and again, we're referencing this last page, but the back of the book, it says that TNT and Dan might appear in Young All-Stars, but it says Tsunami definitely will. So clearly Roy was still sort of sketching out how he wanted the team to look for Young All-Stars. I guess so. You know, and I should point out just as a diversion, the day we're recording this, this is Roy Thomas's birthday. Happy birthday, Roy Thomas. There you go. There you go. And, you know, we said that uh, this issue hit the stands on November 20th. That was two days ago, so it was the anniversary of that, so... Doesn't usually line up that closely, but is um, did you ever read Young All Stars? I did. I, I couldn't get into it. I, I read like the first year of it because I was such a fan of All Star Squadron, and the you know Young All Stars was clearly the replacement book. So I was like, okay, I'll give this a shot. And a year into it, I just I was like, this is just not floating my boat, and I, I ended up giving up on it. I can understand that. It, it, it was not like All-Star. All-Star Squadron was a straightforward superhero comic. This, he was really trying to do something interesting and different stuff. He really wanted to weave literary references into the series. I, I mean, the, one of the main characters, Hugo Danner, comes from a book. Yes. You know, um, they started weaving Frankenstein into it. I mean, all kinds of literary characters they wanted. And that's also where the, um, that, Aquaman Earth 2 origin sort of ended up with Neptune Perkins. Mm-hmm. So, I completely I mean, appreciated what Roy was trying to do. Yeah. I just, it, I just, I, I just was like, nah, this, these characters just aren't working for me the way, the things I enjoyed about Ultra Squadron were just to me very sadly lacking in Young Ultimate. Well, if, where I'm going with this is if you want to just have your breath taken away, go out, find the covers to the first four or six issues, I can't remember, the trade dress and the covers are just stunning. Yeah, with the white borders? Yeah, the white borders. I can't even remember who the artist is right now off the top of my mind. But, God, they're just stunning. So, I just, I love, you know, even, it's funny, it's like, I think I love the idea of Young All-Stars more than I actually love Young All-Stars. It's probably what it is. <laughs> so, anyway, probably spending more time talking about that than I need to. Next up, Tobias Whale. This is one of those cases where, uh, we've talked about on the show, where whatever your name is when you're born sort of dictates who you become. <laughs> Tobias Whale is essentially Marvel's kingpin. Imagine Marvel's kingpin, but albino. It's kind of what you're looking at, and a little more lumpy. He's a huge, huge, massive dude. He's albino. He's very large. He's powerful. He wears really fancy suits and diamond-studded cravats and everything. And he, other than the lumpiness of the head, he really looks just like the kingpin, you know, in the the white skin. And he's in charge of organized crime, all those things. You know, probably his biggest crime is the fact that he ever worked with the character Cyanide who we just tore to shreds last issue or an issue or two ago. He's just a ridiculous villain. I think he even worked with both versions of Cyanide, if I remember right. So, and, and we see her in the Serpent. Is she in there? Oh, she is there with her little electro whip, isn't she? Yep. Mm-hmm. There's some sort of twisted stuff in here, too. I mean, he is involved with the murder of Violet's parents, uh, of Violet and Violet's parents, and how she became Halo. Right. So, But Tobias Whale is primarily known as a Black Lightning villain and uh, was Drawn here, and I believe created by Trevor Von Eden from an artistic standpoint, right? Yes. So, it's a nice piece. Uh, I like his logo. The W is massive. It really sort of gives that whale feeling to it. But it's, it just screams Kingpin. Yeah, I think we're seeing why Black Lightning didn't really work as a solo book. <laughs> I think there's a lot of reasons why Black Lightning. This was the main guy, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I think Frank has written a, a treatise on why Black Lightning didn't work as a solo book. So, but... Uh, yeah, I guess that's really all I've got on this one. I mean, he's, I'm not buying that he's only 382 pounds. He's yeah. six. He's six eight. 382 is not enough for how big that guy is. Sure, he's six eight, and he's a pure wall of muscle. Yeah, he's so. 382 is really not that heavy if you think about how big that is. So yeah. Now, when I say he's a ripoff king, I mean 
Kingpin was around before this guy, right? Oh, Kingpin was around in the 60s, so yeah. That's what I thought. Okay. Yeah. He's not a ripoff. I mean, I, I would say a ripoff because, I mean, you know what? A ripoff kind of indicates that you're trying to get away with something. I think Tony Isabella knew that this was clearly his homage to Kingpin. Hmm. Okay. Uh, you know, I mean, I don't think he was any thinking he was getting by anybody. <laughs> you know, like, oh, oh, really, really, Kingpin? I have no idea. <laughs> and this is, uh, it's fair to say, this is probably before Frank Miller's Kingpin too. I mean, this is when Kingpin was still a Spider-Man villain, so he was more of a, a villain of the week, really. So, all right. Well, no. no. Well, uh, you know, that's a good question because yeah, you think you're right because this was before Born Again, certainly. So yeah, maybe so. Well, no, Kingpin came along much earlier than that. Uh, Kingpin came along in Daredevil in the 160s, 150s. Yeah, oh yeah. Frank Miller. Right, well, then, Born Again was the tail end of Frank's run. And, well, it was the second, fr- second sure. Frank's run. But that was, you know, that was, and, and Kingpin was already a major player prior to that. And Black Lightning was like 1976, wasn't it? Wasn't 77, it? yeah. So They may have been contemporaries. Either way, yeah, we're not going to solve that right now, so. Something else for people to research. You guys are good at it. Next page. A bunch of spoilers for Rob. Uh, character named Tokamak. Did you read the entry? Yes. Oh, so many spoilers. Oh, well. It's right. every, every issue you get on me for not reading the thing, and then I read it and you get mad at me. It's now, just this one I entry. I was hoping maybe you skipped. Oh, well. Tokamak is a Firestorm villain. And currently, I don't know if you listen to the Fire and Water podcast or not, but Rob and I are covering... <laughs> Uh, my favorite Firestorm arc, issues 14 through 18 and annual number one, and it involves the, the introduction and creation of a character named Tokamak. And here is his entry all laid out for you with every gory detail, so Rob has no surprises left uh, as we cover the number of I'll forget issues. all this by the time we get to it. You probably don't even remember right now. So, anyway. Wait, uh, who are we doing? What? Okay, yeah. <laughs> the gist of it is Tokamak is a very rich, almost sort of uh, Howard Hughes kind of guy. He, he's super rich, you know, technology baron. Uh, and he's very, very, very sick. You know, he's invalid. He, he can't move. He's, he's, um, what am I trying to say? His immune system is shot. You know, a common cold could kill him. So he's very weak to the point where he has to like whisper and everything, but he, he wants to become healthier and keep his empire growing. So he does a bunch of machinations, which again, we're covering in fire and water. And ultimately he ends up getting imbued with all these nuclear powers by replicating the Firestorm incident, how Firestorm got his powers. And he, they have to construct this suit for him to contain it all. And he is also responsible for the creation of Firehawk, and Multiplex was involved, and he can create these energy rings, which he can then compress and cause things to either compress and be destroyed, or compress and shrink. And uh, it's kind of interesting. So, Art here, by the way, is Dennis Cowan and uh, Greg Brooks. Absolutely no reason why they should be doing this drawing. No idea why. You've got Firestorm artists on tap. I don't know why they chose these guys to do it. And they don't quite do it justice because Tokamak is supposed to look a lot larger. He he actually looks fat, Tokamak normally. Looks like a big old fat round thing. And here he looks, you know, looks skinny, but he doesn't look as large as he should. The background's nice, though. I do like Firestorm blasting Tokamak. I do like Tokamak, you know, facing off against Firestorm in the bottom. It's sort of a close-up of a profile shot of him. But um, it's it's a fine entry. I mean, the logo's a little boring. But and Tokamak is, if I remember right, Russian for a type of nuclear reactor, I think, if I remember right. That's off the top of my head. Uh, Robert Gross is probably screaming at his Zonophone going, no! Actually, he doesn't have a Zonophone, does he? He has probably, yeah, like, a maybe, a, you know, one of those... iPhone 2. iPhone 2s, yeah. That's probably a Robert Gross kind of thing. <laughs> anyway, what you got on this one? Uh, it's okay. 
I, I like the logo a lot. Uh, really? This, yeah, I kind of like it. Boring. Uh, I like Dennis Cowan's work a lot, but this is not some of his nicest. I he's he seems like an odd choice. His work is very kind of gritty. Mm-hmm. So th- this character seems like an unusual choice for him, and you don't really see a lot of his stuff here. I have to imagine. Uh, there was a lot of influence by Greg Brooks, who, who is unavailable for comment. So uh, I, yeah, it's kind of a, the overall kind of a dull listing. Yeah, he's, he's got like a metal tin can suit. He looks kind of like a titanium man or sort of yeah. with a with a clear face mask. Yeah, and it's um, you know, it was originally drawn by Pat Broderick, and you know, Raphael Cayenne would have been a good choice to step in and do it if they wanted, you know, here. So I, oh well, it's not a miss, but it's not a win either. Yeah. Certainly not as much of a, as a win of the next one. The next one is Tomahawk and Dan Hunter by Dan Spiegel. And th- I love this one. I think it's great because you, you, they, they sandwich two characters in on the same entry because it's Tomahawk and his sidekick, Dan Hunter. And uh, first of all, the logo is so boss. Tomahawk has a great logo. Yeah. Is, that, is that from the book, I guess? Yeah. yeah. That is the coolest freaking logo ever. I lo- you know, this is going on the Tumblr just because that logo is so awesome. And, uh, you know, Dan Spiegel, did, did he draw the book, I assume? I don't think so. Really? I don't know. I, I have to say this about Tomahawk. I have talked many times before about how much I love the Son of Tomahawk books that, that was the last year or so of that series that was drawn by Frank Thorne. And it was set in the – while still, of course, being flashbacks to us – was set in the future of Tomahawk where Tomahawk was an old man and his son was the main character. Um, these adventures, which was makes up the bulk of the – Tomahawk run. I mean, the Tomahawk series ran like 170 issues. 140, plus you had another 60 issues in Star Spangled, something or other. Okay, so 140. 140, like, and 130 of them are set in this time period that we're looking at here. But these stories to me are dull as dishwater. I've tried to get into them. I really have, and I just can't. They're so boring that (laughs) I... And I don't think any of the ones I've ever seen were drawn by Dan Spiegel because that would help me okay. stay awake because I really like Dan Spiegel's work. I always have. And if I read some Tom Hall comics drawn by him, I would have more interest. But, man, these things just bore me to tears. But I still really love the character. So uh, I feel kind of guilty almost saying it because it's like it's not – it's a non-superhero book. It was – he clearly had a constituency because he ran for a very long time. I mean mm-hmm. kids really liked it. But I just – I don't know, man. I can't get through those comics. <laughs> well, it's uh, it's from the either from the 1950s or 1960s, and really looks like it's trying to play off the Davy Crockett sort of fascination that our country may have had. It may have been a few years too late for Davy Crockett fandom, but he looks like a Davy Crockett kind of guy, you know? Yeah, I mean, westerns were huge in the 50s well, on television and in the comics. DC had several, like at least half a dozen western series running, and Tomahawk just fits in that. It's not, it's not really a western exactly, but it's you know a history comic, an old frontiersy comic, an adventure comic as opposed to a superhero book. So you know, it fit in perfectly with their line of publishing back then. Yeah, and and it sounds like this book actually took place in a couple time periods. Like it sounds like if I'm reading these entries right, him and Dan were doing their adventures, and then it jumps forward. 10 or 15 years to the Revolutionary War. Yeah. And that's when you get Tomahawk's Rangers or whatever they're called. We'll find right. out on the next page. And Dan's a, an adult there. So it's yeah. sort of interesting. Now, both them premiere, they both premiere in the same issue. So it's not like one of those where a, a hero is introduced and then a sidekick later. They were both introduced at the same time, which is you know worth noting. The same and, book that TNT and Dan and Dynamite first appeared in. No freaking way. Star Spangled Comics. Star Spangled Comics number 69? Not the same issue, but oh, the same series. Okay. Interesting. Oh, okay. Huh. Very interesting. 
Now, it's funny. It says here his son is named Hawk, right? Right. And I never thought about that. Tom Hawk's last name is Hawk. So is his name really Hawk Hawk? <laughs> I guess it is. Or is it just he goes by his last name? He just, they just called him Hawk in the book. Gotcha. <laughs> but uh, I think Rob's hit all the other salient points. Um, you get Lord Schilling there, which I will never forget Lord Schilling simply because of his who's who entry. It cracked my butt out. I mean, we, we laughed so hard over that entry. It just, you know, it, it, oh, it makes me think of a silly 80s cartoon where they always fight the same bad guy every episode. And the bad guy's <laughs> always in a disguise and they rip off the mask and they go, oh! It's Lord Schilling, you know, sort of things. <laughs> how I envision it, because he's a master of disguise. So he's right there in the entry, and you know, it's 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 a nice nice piece. I like the artwork. So we got a uh, just a total offshoot, but we got a, a trailer, and it worked the other day, which is an, a, an historical film made in France, and it store it stars John Malkovich as a as some sort of general, like Lord Bullington or some kind of name, and he looks just like Lord Schelling. Like, and, I, and that's all that I thought of was watching the trailer, and I'm like, man, if they ever make a Tomahawk movie and you got Lord Schelling, they got the guy. Maybe he is Lord Schelling in disguise. Maybe so. I didn't see, see the movie. Just saw the trailer. So. All right. Next up, Tomahawk's Rangers. If Tomahawk was a win by Dan Spiegel, this one's a bit of a miss by Don, Dan Spiegel. Um yeah. The the logo is incredibly boring. It's probably legit though. You know, it's probably why it's so boring is because it's legit. You get ten characters crammed in their little faces on the left hand side, and then on the right hand side you get a quick little shot of them running at you. And the art's not all that great. And the colorist was asleep at the job. <laughs> Did you pick up on this? Where I'm going with this? No. Okay. They talk about uh, Healer Randolph. You see him, the little old man out there with the, up the top with the white hair. Mm-hmm. Healer Randolph was a black man who learned about healing herbs from tribal shamans in his native Africa. Oh, that, God. That is the whitest guy on the page. Huh. They, they really didn't color him well. Uh, he, he's, he's not only a white guy, he's a really white guy. So it's um, whoops and a miss. So and it's funny because all of the guys in the Rangers are sort of named for stuff like Big Anvil, you know, Brass Buttons, Cannonball, uh, Stovepipe. Which, that one cracks me up. Stovepipe's hysterical. Long Rifle. So, I mean, there's a couple of them that aren't named for your stuff, but most of them are named for items, which is sort of funny. And Dan's grown up, and apparently Dan's grown fat, maybe? I don't know. Yeah, Dan, Dan grew up to be a big dude. He grew up to be John Goodman. Yeah. <laughs> That's who his little face looks like here, so... Um, you know, it talks about their actions during the Revolutionary War, and it's, it's you know, sort of interesting. You get other characters like Frenchie and Wildcat and... Kentuck Jones and, and stuff like that, but overall, not a lot of interesting there for me. This is I, I, I uh, you know, I said I've talked about how much I like Tomahawk as a concept. This is being very kind to the Tomahawk universe that these guys got a whole page. It really is. <laughs> well, they, I mean, they were around a long time. I mean, they first started appearing around issue eighty three, and they kept continuing to appear all the way to maybe not consistently, but at least the Rangers in some some fashion or another continued to appear up to one twenty eight. They were around a long time, but so were Flippity and Flop, and they didn't get a listing. So, I mean, that was not the prerequisite. I, I'm just, I, I think DC was being very. I think you, you you mentioned early on that like when they expanded this to twenty six, yeah, he probably had a couple of pages to fill. I think this is being enormously kind to the Tomahawk universe, a character at that point that most people had forgotten, let alone the sidekick guys. That's true. You know, they could have, like, if they had decided to go to 26 from issue one, I think they would have not had a problem with running out of characters. But the fact that they decided, like, after the first year or so, it was like, that's, you know, they already used up a bunch of good spots. Yeah. Next up is definitely a win. 
Tommy Tomorrow of the Planeteers, art by Jim Mooney, and I love, love, love this page. I hope you do too. I'm going to be upset if you don't. I may cry a little. It's nice. I mean, it's it's very classic Silver Age comics, and uh, I enjoy his shorts. Dude, I know he's totally rocking the shorts. I'm like, how often do you? It's in my notes. How often do you see a man of action rocking shorts? He's purple shorts, no less. He's doing it, man. He is. Being an adventurer doesn't mean I have to be uncomfortable. Exactly, exactly. And uh, it's another case of you know, if you're when you're born with a name, just know that it's going to dictate your destiny. He is Thomas Tomorrow, so he's got to be super cool. So uh, his first appearance is in Real Fact Comics. I've never even heard of that title. I used to have a couple of those issues back when I collected did comics. Not. I did. You I did back when I bought everything that was Golden Age. Yep, because it was Jeez. it was one of the cheaper books that you could get from that era. Who published it? DC. Bullshit. No, really? Was there, yeah, I it was a just... mixture. Real Fact Comics was a mixture of, as you might imagine, real facts, <laughs> like stories based on like Tommy real, thi- real things, <laughs> and then mixed in, yeah, like Tommy Tomorrow, and then re- mixed in other stuff, you know, other fictional strips. So it was kind of this am- amalgamation of different sort of genres, and, and uh, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Okay. I just assumed that it was uh, like one of they picked up, like a faucet. Or no, a yeah, no, that was a DC, Golden Age DC series. Okay. Well, there you go. So, anyway, he's Tommy Tomorrow of the Planeteers, which is interesting because the first appearance says, okay, real. he has a first appearance, and then he has a first appearance as Planeteer. Maybe his job changed? I don't really know what that's about, but it's uh, it's ten issues apart, whatever happened there. So, anyway, um, I really dig this guy. He's very he's sort of a space ranger, and he, he's not like Buzz Lightyear, but, I mean, it's, there's sort of that, you know, he's out in space, he's patrolling the space lanes, he's protecting people, he's got, you know, his ray guns and stuff. In fact, there's a funny bit here. Where is this? Where they, um, uh, there's a lot of official stuff. Like, they have an official planeteer craft. He and Captain Woods are armed with official weapons, mainly ray guns. It actually says that. That's a great line. <laughs> mainly ray guns, you know. So, and then I I mentioned the shorts already. There's a there's a big 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 retcon in here, which is in the beginning, and I just sort of ignored it till now. But basically, they they retconned Commandy, Omac, and Tommy Tomorrow all together, <laughs> and it basically said that Omac was what the grandfather is that right? Yeah, the grandfather of Commandy, but. In the post-crisis universe, Commandy never happened. So in the post-crisis universe, Commandy is actually Tommy Tomorrow. So they come right out and say that, and that was that because that came from the history of the DC universe at this point. So <laughs> you know that book that was going to solve everything, the so. epoch shaking <laughs> DC universe. I think that's the only thing that really surprised me. Out of the DC, well, you, you found that the JLA and the JSA existed on the same Earth. And that Tommy Tomorrow is, is who Commander used to be. I don't remember there being any other earth-shattering moments in that book. That series that answered all questions after Crisis, right. and, it was, and nothing was ever referred to again. According to the Who's Who letters page, it was going to. So, yeah. It's a nice entry. I, I We talked about the foreground. The background's got him fighting like a slithery monster and a robot. And it's got his friend sort of like in the face of a moon in their ship. So I, I dig it. I love it. You know, Jim Mooney's great. He drew some of these strips. So he's a perfect choice for this, so. Great logo. Great logo. Yeah. Good stuff. Good stuff. All right. Uh, next up, T.O. Morrow. <laughs> Interesting. His first appearance was in a Flash comic. I always figured it would have been, you know, like Justice League or something like that. So I, I was surprised he was a Flash villain. I didn't realize that. So, um, And now, here, here is a man who knew his business. We talked about, you know, Tobias Whale 
you know, his name sort of dictated his future. We talked about Tommy Tomorrow sort of dictated his future. Here, this guy, whose name is Thomas Oscar Morrow, uh, which, you know, T.O. Morrow, Tomorrow, he says, because of his name, not just that he happened to be coincidental, because of his name, he was a scientist always interested in the future. So he recognized that his name was dictating his fate. I'm impressed with that. Very good, very self-aware for the man. So anyway, um, art by Joe Brozowski and Greg Brooks. No particular reasons necessarily for them to draw them, except for Joe Brozowski was kind of one of their house guys, you know, for who's who. So that's why he sort of fits in there. I love how pissed Tiomara looks. He looks pissed and overweight. I like that he's fat because, you know, in the New 52, you know, he's skinny, of course. But, uh, you know, they're, they're fat people deserve to be in comics too. There's no reason why he can't be. So. And, well, he's listed here as 5'10 and 191. That's hardly fat. No way. No, not even for a second. No, I don't, I'm not saying that's correct, but I'm just saying that's, that is how he's listed. Yep. And that's, that's, so. yeah. I just think it's good. I think it's cool because it's just it, all the, the more different body types you show, the better the, the world seems to be. Anyway, it, it talks in here how he fought Flash. This is confused me. He fought Flash 2 and Green Lantern 2, which means Hal and Barry. And yet he goes on to then mess with the JSA. So I don't yeah. know how did that worked out. I don't know how the earth hopping involved, and you know they don't. I, maybe they should have given us another three paragraphs about it. Uh, we'll get to that in a minute. Anyway, <laughs> uh, he was fascinated with you know time travel stuff. He built a future TV, which let him see into the future and gave him guidance on what to build for gadgets and stuff. And he's most famous for, and surprised we haven't gotten to this point yet without saying it, is uh, he's most known for building what, Rob? The Red Tornado. And you can read more about Red Tornado where, Rob? Oh, in various places. Such as Back Issue Magazine? <laughs> yes, yeah, so, such as Back Issue Magazine. Number 76, I think? <laughs> uh, something like that, featuring an article written by me about the Red Tornado. There we go. Woohoo! So, um, it's a fun entry. You know, I, I'm really, really glad, and you're going to get mad at me, but I'm really, really glad they minimized the Future Man nonsense. No, I'm entirely happy. That is one doofy concept. Oh, but when we when we covered with, uh, with, with Zawizza, when we covered the JLA issues about Red Tornado, and I said they didn't need to go into all that backstory about Future Man and all the, the two different versions of TMR, you guys were all over my case going, no, what are you talking about? They're great. I'm like, no, we don't need that in the book. They could just go forward. But anyway, so I figured you'd be on my case about it. So Future, yeah. Man, Future Man barely gets mentioned, but he takes up half the Serpent. <laughs> You see that? Yeah, we see him blasting uh, Red Tornado. Yeah, with his uh, giant chrome dome, and then attacking Red Tornado and the other JLAers yeah. again. Blech, blech. <laughs> Can't stand that nonsense. So anyway, um, he's, he's a big guy. He's a big important character. I mean, you know, in, in the in the mythos of the JLA, being the creator of one of the JLA members, he's he's pretty important. Oh yeah, yeah. So. All right. Next up is a man with quite possibly my favorite logo of the issue. That's the, a great logo. <laughs> the top. It's it looks like it's a Calvin and Hobbes logo. It's when, you know not like the Calvin and Hobbes logo, but it looks like something from Calvin and Hobbes. It's just a bunch of like swirly lines that have been colored green and yellow because you know, he spins. It's hilarious. It's so. the, it's got to be the only logo with motion lines. Probably, probably. So the top is a Flash villain named uh, Roscoe. <laughs> Roscoe Dillon <laughs> cracks me up. And this is one of the three masks in the comic. And is it fair to say that mask is completely ineffective? Yeah, I mean, it's essentially sunglasses. Yeah, well, they're, they're supposed to be like little spinning tops, what they're supposed to look like. Is that what they're supposed to yeah, be? Yeah, they're supposed to be little spinning tops. I didn't get that at all. Yeah, okay. well, I've, I've unfortunately read a lot of Carmen Infantino Flash comics. So um, his power is to spin quickly. And and now they they're very specific to say that he spins at high speed, but not superhuman speed. 
<laughs> so all the spinning he does, that's actually just regular human speed. So I think I love to think of this hysterically as like, you know, when you watch somebody who thinks they're being really cool and they're not really. Like, I don't mean to be mean, but, you know, they did that, that viral thing about the fat lightsaber kid or whatever. He, mm-hmm. thought, he thought he was really cool. I'm not, I'm not picking on him. I'm just using that example. And I'm just imagining some guy spinning, and he thinks he looks really cool, and I'm like, dude, I, I, that's not that impressive. Because so <laughs> he's not, apparently not sp- superhumanly spinning, even though clearly he is in the comics. I don't know why they made, the, they made that distinction, but maybe he's spinning at Linda Carter's speed. I don't know. Anyway. His superpower is having the guts to appear in public in that costume. Well, they're pajamas. They're green and yellow striped booty, booty pajamas. <laughs> and hey, he was tapping Golden Glider, so I mean, that's, yeah. that's not so bad. And uh, so in the front, you get your typical Carmen Infantino pose. He's got hands on hips, and uh, in the background, he is pimp slapping. Is that Barry? Yeah, he's pimp slapping Barry. You see his face, and then he's spinning away from Barry, apparently not at superhuman speed. But no. it looks like it to me. Now, I remember this character sort of freaks me out because my earliest memories of Top was reading comics. I was fairly young. I mean, I was probably 14, maybe, first time I read a Top comic. And what the story was was Barry's dad had died, I think in a car accident maybe. And as his soul left his body, Roscoe, who was dead at this point, who died in an incident with the Flash, Roscoe's ghost inhabited Flash's dad's body. Took it over, put on the crazy booty pajamas. I think he was tapping Golden Glider at the same time, by the way. And held a gun to his head. And basically said, Barry, if you don't do what I want, I'm going to kill your dad. And it just freaked me out. And uh, it's always bothered me. Because Firestorm had a backup in it. It's the only reason I bought it. And it just... And they even make... They talk about it for like a whole paragraph here. So, anyway. That's all I got. Okay. All right, moving on. The Toy Man. An expertly drawn entry for the Toy Man by Marshall Rogers. Now, I, I did a little research on this, and Marshall isn't associated with the Toy Man. So I wasn't quite sure why they got Marshall to do it, other than it just looks gorgeous. I got the sense that Marshall Rogers just asked to do certain ones that he just liked, because there's another one later on in this issue that he has no connection to that he did. So, yeah. so it's, you know, the foreground, you've got you know, Toy Man, and, and this is the Toy Man, the, the slightly overweight sort of uh, toy maker who's who's lost credit, and and he looks sort of happy and friendly. You know, he's wearing almost like a Colonel Sanders sort of multicolored outfit, and his his logo is uh, Toy Blocks. This is Toy Man, and he's got a yo-yo. And in the background, you see him building toys, except he's loading an action figure full of nitroglycerin. And you can even see Brainiac's ship in the back. Wait a minute, there's a, what's it say? There's a sticky note next to Brainiac's ship. Yeah, I can't read it. It's so tiny. Oh, I wish I could read what that says. Anyway, and then it shows him, like, unleashing some little action figures on Superman. And you see him using, like, a jack-in-the-box to go high up in the air to get to a diamond, you know, exchange. So it's, it's – I think it's an expertly drawn entry. It really is. Yeah, it's it's really beautiful. It's it's really – I mean, Marshall Rogers did a great job on these things. So it's really very nice. Uh, Toy Man is, you know, visually not much – so, uh, and you're always sort of hard pressed to understand how he could be remotely a foe for Superman. <laughs> but, uh, but the, I think it's say by this is how well drawn it is. Yeah. Well, he does talk about how he, he's willing to commit murder and stuff like that. So it's like he looks, as Rob said, completely harmless. But when they start talking about his willingness to commit murder, it's sort of like, ugh. I mean, the gist of it is some kid stole a toy plane from him when he was a, a young boy and decided that a life of crime through toys is the way to go for him. <laughs> 
And it's interesting written because it starts off blow by blow, which you know I can't stand in Who's Who. I can't stand a they did this, then this. The, but then it, as it goes on, it becomes like it's only the first incident that's blow by blow, and then it becomes sort of generalist because they fought so many times. And it actually it works pretty good. Now they do something in this entry that's sort of surprising. They make in, they make mention of a second toy man, uh, Jack Nimble, which is a brilliant name by the way. And if you do your research, you find out Jack Nimble is sort of the toy man we all know from Super Friends. From the Challenge of the Super Friends era? Right. That's the Jack Nimble one. And I guess he was in comics first. But either way, he talks about how they dealt with him in this, but he doesn't get a page. He's just mentioned. He doesn't even get, like, a personal data information listed, nope. which is very unusual. Normally when there's a, a, a second version of a character, they list all that. And I would say he's well-known enough. I mean, heck, I knew the Super Friends Toy Man more so than I knew this Toy Man. So... And Toy Man reforms and turns bad, and reforms and turns bad. And then in post-crisis, he becomes a child murderer, so it's really horrible. So, really icky, icky. Next up, the most unusual entry, I think. It's the award for the strangest job in Who's Who. Matt Savage, trail boss. That's right, he's a cattle driver. And he's in a comic book. <laughs> I just can't imagine how interesting that comic must not have been. Um, <laughs> it was only 10 issues. He only had 10 appearances. And sure enough, Carmen Infantino did draw some of them, so he drew this entry here. And not surprisingly, it's him standing there looking right at the camera. The only difference is he's about to draw. He's yeah, no draw. hands on hips at least. He's going to draw on you, man. Watch out. So, uh, you know, it's the, the art's actually fine. Carmen did a very nice job in this one. It's a little better than some of his other entries. You know? Yeah, I agree with that. So and the inker is, by the way, Bernard Sachs. So Matt is staring at you in sort of that pose. He's ready to draw. In the background, you see him on a horse driving some cattle, and you see him, you know, shooting probably a rustler, maybe. And you see him with his hat there and some cacti. So I mean, it's it's. I like the art. I do. And uh, the this is where it gets a little confusing. So Matt Savage is apparently the father of Brian Savage, known as Scalp Hunter, and then Scalp Hunter is the father of Balloon Buster. So he sort of followed the trail down through history. And even more so, Scalp Hunter is apparently, later on, gets reincarnated as one of the O'Dare brothers from Starman. So, okay. Well, James Robinson loved his continuity. so <laughs> And he probably had who's who at the wazoo. So, uh, Anything of interest about a trail boss, Rob? Not particularly. I like on the cover he's listed as trail boss Matt Savage. That's true. That is pretty cool. Here he's Matt Savage trail boss. This is clearly someone they forgot. I think, or maybe maybe when they were doing the M's, decided to cut him, and then when then they decided to expand the series, they're like, oh, you know, we can put him back in. Let's put him under Trail Boss. The trail Boss? Really? Like, that's a thing? You can... Maybe that was the name of the strip. But there's enough, I'm just saying there's enough content to make an ongoing story about a guy, a cattle driver? Really? No. So, anyway. Next up, The Trickster. This is one of my favorite entries of the book. Drawn by Paris Cullens and Gary Martin. So much fun. I mean, the trickster really belonged in their hands. He, they made him come alive. Like, I really, there's a lot of people love him as a Flash villain. But for me, he is always a Blue Devil supporting character. So, he uh, talks about here how he reformed from being a villain. And he literally becomes a supporting, he becomes a good guy. He becomes an advisor to this, you know, scientific studies group and stuff in the Blue Devil series. They talk about his anti-gravity shoes. One shoe makes things go up. One shoe makes things go down. And that becomes an important story point. That's why they make the point of pointing that out. In the foreground, you've got uh, he's spinning a rubber chicken like a weapon. And if you've never seen him, he's got a horribly garish costume. I mean, it's orange and blue and yellow and pinstripe and 
booties and capes and uh, now he has a mask on but it's it's not effective and um in the background in the serpent you've got him you know fighting throwing things at the flash you've got him throwing rings at blue devil you've got a great close-up of his face um just gorgeous gorgeous entry yeah cullens and martin are a great art team there's no doubt about it there's no doubt about it and i agree i like the idea of repurposing, you know, Flash had a lot of villains. Mm-hmm. So there's no reason why he couldn't devote a couple of them over to other characters. And he did seem to work well over in, as, as Blue Devil. Yeah. And because he was a stuntman, and I don't know if that was in the original story or not, but he, in, at least in the Blue Devil stories, he was a stuntman. So him and Dan had a lot in common. And it just, it works so well. It's, uh, it's uh, just, uh, I love those Blue Devil comics. All right. <laughs> I love them so much more than this next ent- next entry. Uh, <laughs> next entry, the Trigger Twins, another Western series, very minor, drawn by Carmen Infantino. <laughs> now, when I say minor, I shouldn't say that because they had over fifty appearances. I didn't know that. Can you believe that? Over fifty appearances. And sure enough, it's them with their hands on their hips and they're staring at the camera. And it looks like he tried to draw them identical, and you can just sort of make out little differences between the two. Mm-hmm. They're not copies. I looked close just to see if Carmine just drew the one and then statted the other one into it. Everybody didn't. <laughs> so he actually he, actually did draw two different figures. He certainly did. And you see them in the serpent, you know, sneaking out of a barn together. They're trick. They're in, in, here's the gimmick of the of the Trigger Twins. No one knows that there's two of them. They're identical brothers. One is a shopkeeper. One is a sheriff. And what happens is when the sheriff gets into a fix. The shopkeeper one dresses up as the sheriff and secretly goes around and helps him. And so they're constantly tricking people into like going, well, wait a minute. I just left you back there. How can you be here? Well, it's because there's two of them. Oh, it's such I can a- see how you could get 50 issues out of that. It's like Three's Company. It's just constant wacky oh. confusion. Yeah, sure. It's painful for me. I'm ready to move on already. <laughs> I'm done. I, I appreciate the fact that so many non-superhero genre characters got their due in Who's Who and this issue specifically. I mean, there's a Matt Savage Trail Boss, Tomahawk, Tomahawk's Rangers, the Trigger Twin. I mean, there's a lot of non-superheroes here. Yes, there are. Yes, there are. There's some weird sci-fi ones towards the end, too. So, uh, Next up, Trigon the Terrible, uh, drawn by George Perez, is a beautifully drawn piece uh, dedicated to the most boring dimensional conqueror ever. Uh, in fact, I tried reading it, and I got bored and almost fell asleep. He's a demon. He fights the Teen Titans a lot. He's really important in their mythos, but I can't stand him. He is so boring. So very boring. And uh, new, the New Teen Titans made a huge miss when they first introduced Trigon in, in their series. And like they kept building to it and building to it, and finally he appears in issue six. And it, that issue was drawn by Kurt Swan. Ooh. Yeah, I know. <laughs> like, we're gonna have George Perez draw, and then we're gonna have Kurt Swan come in and do the payoff. What? Oh, yeah. oh. exactly. Oh. So, um, it's you know, Trigon is a big red demon who wears white, which I've never quite understood. But anyway. he's Raven's father. He's Raven's father. He's got four eyes and antlers. I mean, he's pretty cool. I mean, when you got to do a demon from hell, he's a pretty cool one. Look at the one. But his story—he's got a big skull codpiece. He like killed some people and wiped out a dimension and he's like evil and I'm done. Drawing's amazing. The drawing is gorgeous. But yeah, I, 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 you know, look, no knock against the new Teen Titans, but like when, if they set Trigon up to be this, uh, you know, like basically like a demonic version of Darkseid and he can't defeat the Teen Titans, (laughs) it makes him look like a puss because I mean, the Teen Titans, 
the Teen Titans just weren't that powerful. They weren't. I mean, outside of Raven, they really didn't have like a whole lot of like really mystical power. And so it's like Trigon can't defeat a bunch of kids. He's really not that big a deal then. You know, it sort of just made him look kind of weak in comparison. Being what he is, he should have been a crisis level bad guy. Yeah, right. Exactly. Right. But he's just, he's a chump. Defeated by Changeling? Really? It's just, it's, it's so, so boring to me. So now. Uh, I'm sure we'll get a letter from Philemon about how amazing Trigon is. So bring it on, buddy. He's cool looking, though. Super cool. Give me that. He does look pretty badass. Uh, the next entry, another one of my favorites in the book. Tsunami. From the logo to the art to everything. Um, Tsunami is a Japanese American teenager who. What are you laughing at? I'm laughing at the whole idea of like characters with names that define their future. Her name really should have been Susan Nami. Oh, gee. <laughs> Thankfully, it wasn't. It's Mia Shimada. She's a Japanese-American born in the United States shortly before World War II. And they, it's really it's, a, it's an effort in the 80s to touch on some of the racial ill. Um, not, is tragedy the right word? I mean, some of the, the unpleasant racist things that were going on in the United States during World War II. And talks about the Japanese-American concentration camps here in the States. She goes back to Japan, works for the Japanese, comes back to America, and eventually sort of turns around and, and ends up helping the All-Star Squadron by the end of it. Great character. She's a water-based character, so it should be right up Rob's alley. She's, uh, she can control the waves, right? Let's see. She can mentally cause tidal waves yeah. to form in the ocean and can mentally control them. Yeah. And, um... I'm just going to put it out there. She's hot. I mean, she totally is. But I love the logo. The logo is sort of bubble logos, and you can see giant waves within her name. And then the drawings by Rick Hoberg, and she's coming in on a giant wave. I, I am a huge fan of Rick Hoberg's art. I mean, he was great on All-Star Squadron. But most recently, I've been reading his work for Ultra Force, uh, a title called Strangers. It starts off okay, but by, like, issue four, he is rocking the artwork in that book. Like, unbelievably. And right, that's where I am right now. And I'm just like, wow, he's such a good artist. Great piece here. In the background, you see a, a giant tidal wave destroying a, a base. It looks like a Japanese base. You see a close-up of her beautiful face. And then you, in, on the bottom, you see her facing off against the All-Star Squadron. Now, she is technically wearing a mask, but this is an ineffectual mask. It's just clear goggles. Really, yeah. That's what she's wearing. So, what you got on this one, Rob? Oh, it's a really nice piece. I mean, I always was a little frustrated that Ray Thomas just so never used Aquaman in the book. I mean, he could have, and he clearly was interested in using aquatic power uh, characters because he brought in Neptune Perkins later on. So it was, I remember as a kid, like seeing Tsunami and being like, well, why isn't this just like, like, why? I mean, I know it didn't, it wouldn't fit the same role, but it was all like, well, like, where's Aquaman? But I, but I liked that Roy was good at um, introducing new characters into All Star Squadron that seemed to fit the history of what he was doing. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. Tsunami doesn't stick out that far as not being a character from the 40s, the way the rest of the characters were created. So he was, he was good at that. The only problem is similar to Tarantula. Her costume is probably too cool for a 1940s costume. Yeah. Like those pants, there's, there's a few too many accents and highlights and stuff. Yeah, you're probably the 1940s. Right. But great character. Really enjoyed her. Now, she went on to be a young all-star as well. And, in yep. fact, she went on, if I remember right, to marry Neptune Perkins. And they have a daughter named Deep Blue. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty cool. Love this character. She's so cute. So, all right. Next. Turtle Man, <laughs> drawn by Check It Peter Laird. 
the first I'm like Peter Laird, Peter Peter Laird. Why do I know that name? Eastman and Laird. Yep. The guy who did Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is drawing a guy named Turtle Man from now, DC. Now I I went to Bob Greenberger and asked him whose idea that was. Yeah. To get Peter Laird, and he said that genius idea is all credited to researcher Peter Sanderson. Really? Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Wait, who did you ask? Bob Greenberg. Oh, okay. Okay. I thought you said Peter Sanderson. <laughs> it's like, well, I credit himself. No, yeah. um, that's a brilliant <laughs> I laughed so hard at this. Have the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle guy draw Turtle Man. That is a hoot. Because by this point, Teenage Mutant, Tur- Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles were pretty big. I mean, they had their animated series by this point, I'm pretty sure. So, yeah. That's great. Yeah, even at the, even at the age when I got this book, I got the joke. You know, I was like, "Oh, that's funny." I was like, "Okay, that's really." I mean, they got this. You know, yeah. I, I totally mean, didn't not, pick. I didn't pick up on it until I was reading it. For the him. fact that there's two turtle men is just ridiculous. This this idea does not deserve to be done twice. But the thing that makes it fly is that it was done by by Laird. Yeah. Well, he's also the very first villain the Flash ever fought. So he, yes, mean, the the second Flash. Second Flash. I'm sorry. Yes. Now. um... It's interesting in that uh, this one, as opposed to the uh, Toy Man we did, where they didn't list the first and second, they didn't differentiate between the two Toy Man, they just had one listing. This right. one lists both. Yeah. It lists their names and stuff like that. Well, unknown and unknown, but I mean, they list the individual ones. So, <laughs> anyway, he's this fat guy who wears like a, looks like a turtle sweatshirt, really, honestly, what it looks like. <laughs> And he's got his hard shell at his back, and he's got some funky powers. Like, he moves so slow that he gets away with stuff, which cracks me up. Like, people think he's gone from the crime scene, but he's still there. That's his gimmick, you know. But I have a coworker who does that, who just moves so slow, he seems to get away with everything. Oh, my gosh. I, I, I had a guy I used to work with who worked so slow. And, we, and whenever someone eats slow, we're like, you eat like so-and-so works. This is ridiculous. Hurry up. we got to go. <laughs> anyway, so the second turtle, though, he had – he stopped calling himself Turtle Man after a while and just called himself Turtle. But anyway. Much more fearsome. Right. And he, had, he packed up some devices. You know, like he had a force field. He had an invisible brake shield. He uh, – then he had a shell that he could fire off his back. In fact, it shows him in the serpent, like this rocket sh- shield firing off his back, which is hysterical. I mean, I love this entry for its sheer campiness. So it would have made a great uh, superpowers action for a figure. Oh my gosh, that'd have been perfect. And yes, he is Barry Allen's first villain. So why he wasn't in the pilot episode of the TV show, I I don't know. (laughs) Someone's not. Someone was asleep at the wheel at that one. I'm just saying. Up next, Tweedledee and Tweedledum, two of the creepier Batman villains, in my opinion, uh, drawn by Bill Sienkiewicz. Now we've seen a lot of Bill Sienkiewicz. Entries in Who's Who, but you know what? I did a little research. I'm like, well, what was Bill drawing for DC? Bill had drawn practically nothing for DC. Yeah, he was mostly Marvel guy. Exactly. So I don't know. Other than he's just totally amazing, um, I'm not sure how they ended up with him. You know, it's it's not my favorite entry by Bill. I think the Serpent's great, but the four entries a little boring. But at the same time, it, it's probably what it should be. You know, two creepy guys from Alice in Wonderland. But I guess I would have expected him to draw him a little weirder. You know, either way. Mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with it, but they, I looked it up too, and at this point they'd only had three uh, appearances, wow. surprisingly. So, because I always thought of them as sort of like a big time Batman villain, but apparently not so much. That's, yeah, that's not a lot considering their first appearance is Detective Number Seventy Four, which is nineteen forty. Yeah. So they had uh, they they were criminal strategists and had electro canes, and they really lived. Uh, you know, they really played up this whole aspect that they looked like the uh, Lewis Carroll characters. So. 
And I love the top serpent piece because you get a good shot of Batman and Robin, and it's like an mm-hmm. old school Batman and Robin. Yeah, he doesn't have the, he's got the giant bat, no circle. Yeah, that, that, that was that was something that uh, Sinkevich did a lot, which is the multi-paneled serpent. Mm-hmm. But it, it, it always worked really well. When the bazookas in the bottom one and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So, a couple of fat kids. There you go. All right. Up next, Two Face by Brian Bolland. <whistles> Gorgeous artwork. Now, had um, Killing Joke come up by this point? Mm-mm. Okay. So I guess he's still building to his, his Batman rep. And, um, you know, uh, here's the thing. This entry blew my mind, and this is why... Wait, I, why, why are you talking... Oh, you mean Boland. I thought you meant Two-Face. I'm like, wait, Two-Face isn't in Killing no, Joke. No, no. You meant Brian Boland. Brian okay. Boland building to his, yeah, Killing Joke stuff. But, I mean, he had done Camelot 3000. True, but he wasn't. But he didn't have a strong connection to the Batman universe yet. No, uh, so, yeah, no, that's true. Yeah, he'd done a bunch of Green Lantern covers and stuff like that. But now, um, I mentioned the, in the beginning about reading Dark Knight Returns and told you that, that it all relates. And here's why: it says in here that he, um, let's see, he got plastic surgery, and Doctor Albert Eckhart repaired his face, the damage to Dan's face. And he married a woman, and he moved on, and he just he stopped being a criminal. I'm like, wait a minute, that's a friggin' plot point in Dark Knight Returns. So apparently they did it in the comics much, much earlier, So, or the regular monthly comics. So that was shocking to me. And here's the thing that's even more shocking as I read this. There was a second Two-Face, mm-hmm. and then a third Two-Face. Mm-hmm. I'm like, what the, that are not Harvey Dent. I'm like, what the hell? I have never even heard of this. And again, doesn't li- just like um, Toy Man doesn't list Two Face Two, Two Face Three in, in the personal data. It just talks about it in the body of the entry. It says, "Let's see." Um, Later, actor Paul Sloan suffered an injury similar to Dent's and became the second criminal known as Two Face. His face was surgically repaired. Still later, George Blake used makeup to impersonate Two Face and commit crimes. And then there was uh, another accident, and that caused Dent's face to get damaged again, and he became uh, Two Face again. And it, it is interesting, too, in the beginning of the entry, they spent a nice three paragraphs or so, or four paragraphs, talking about how he became Two-Face. And it's really well written. It's very interesting, too. As you're reading, you're like, wow. You know, I just feel really bad for this guy. He was gorgeous. He, he went. They nick, His nickname was Apollo, since he was so pretty. And um, you feel really bad for the character. Go ahead. No, I like this entry. This, this is probably the best entry in the book. Uh, I love Brian Boland's work. I love the Two-Faces looking right in the camera, which is great. Um, he's... There's a little word balloon in the surprint, which was pretty rare. I, I think can't. Think I think. Of, I think it is the only word balloon in the, the surprint and the entire who's who. Okay, yeah, where he's saying touche to Batman, which I was like, okay, touche. I get it. Um, a couple of different things. What do you, uh, I don't, what do you get? Two. <laughs> two. 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 I, um, I didn't pronounce it out loud, so I didn't yeah. get it. <laughs> yeah, I talked to myself, so that's why that happened. It doesn't mention it here, but uh, in his first appearance, maybe more than his first, but at least at least the very first, he was Harvey Kent, not Harvey Dent. Huh. And over time, they changed that to Harvey Dent um, because I remember years later in All-Star Squadron, somebody wrote a letter in and said, hey, uh, maybe there was an Earth 2 Two-Face and an Earth 1 Two-Face and the Earth 2 Two-Face is Harvey Kent. Is he possibly related to Clark Kent? And I think Roy Thomas has shot that down. Like, no, no, it's just Harvey Dent. So they got rid of that. Um, Two Face is the one of the few sort of major tier Batman villains to never appear on the TV show, the '60s TV show. Um, 
being, ironically. Being featured in the comic right now. Which is which ironically enough, the the apparently there was a script written for the character's introduction, but it was never produced. And it has just been turned into an issue of the Batman sixty six TV series drawn by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Read his, his name. name. So uh, I gotta get that because that sounds really interesting. So um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's this it's it's great. It's just a beautiful drawing. I love all the serpent stuff. And one other thing about Two Face, I do want to mention. When I uh, was a kid and I was buying the Treasury editions um, back when they had them. DC did an all Batman one and in they had it was focusing on the villains and they had a Joker story, a Catwoman story, a Penguin story, and a Two-Face story. Except the Two-Face story was reprints from the Batman newspaper strip. Hmm. And at that age I didn't know that that was a thing. And in that story, Two-Face dies at the end. Hmm. And I remembered like I was like, "Wait, what?" Because I knew Two-Face was still around and it was mm-hmm. really confusing. But it that strip was – that was like one of the building blocks of why I became to like love classic newspaper strips and absolutely you know, just informed my life because I loved it because they were all color Sundays. Mm-hmm. And it was just – I just loved the difference in the format. And the fact that Two-Face could die at the end was really like exciting. It was like, ooh, these stories can have like a natural end to them and stuff. So – it was really cool, and it still remains one of my all-time favorite Two Face stories. Is that that first one that I ever read? <laughs> I really enjoyed. Um, what was it? Now it was one of the one of the earliest. Was it Year Three or was it Lonely Place of Dying? Lonely Place of Dying had Two Face. That was probably my first really big Two Face story. Where he's listening to the radio the whole time. I won't give away the spoiler, but the radio turns out to be something you don't think it is. And okay. uh, I became fascinated with Two Face to the point where I went and bought a silver dollar. And okay. scarred one side of it. Oh my god! They started flipping it. Uh, I didn't. I didn't think myself evil, but I just thought it was a cool look and a cool move. And uh, I don't know if I've ever told this story, or not Robin. I'm sorry. I'm going to deviate here. Maybe I have. Maybe I haven't. But a buddy of mine had a dark blue, midnight blue, VW bug. And <laughs> his name's Ravenface. I've told you a little about it. This oh, guy before. Okay. Yeah. And he had this midnight blue VW bug, and he got in 1989, of course, a Batman sticker on the side of his car. So it became the Bat Bug, is what everyone called it. And he would go even go as, as far as dress up as Batman and drive around in it. Whoa. <laughs> it was just for fun to be silly. I mean, this just this guy's a total hoot. Anyway, so I did, took it upon myself to start playing a game with him where I would at first I put Joker cards, like playing cards on his on his like his, his car when he wouldn't be there. He'd come back and find a Joker card on his car and, and eventually I did a two face thing too. But the idea is we played this game around town where I would leave him clues and he would have to go to that clue, find it, solve that clue which would lead him somewhere else, which would lead him somewhere else, and it would go take him all over town. And we did we did a few of these, did like three of these games. And like, you know, it, it, we were in high school, so like one of them would lead him to a locker, and he'd have to figure out a mathematical equation to figure out the combination. You and guys had a lot of free time. No, we're just brilliant. Anyway, and uh, I, we did a whole one as, as, uh, as Two-Face. And it, during all of this, we never spoke of it. We never acknowledged that we knew who each other were, that, that we figured out who was doing, you know, that he knew I was the one doing all this stuff. It was a lot of fun. So that, anyway, Two-Face has fond memories for me. So, all right. Next up, the 2000 committee, who for years I'd confused with the 100, and even to this day I confuse with the 100. Um, the 2000 committee was a group of bad guys in the Firestorm book whose plan was to take over the U.S. government by the year 2000. I think they succeeded. Insert your political joke here. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, one of the key members of the 1000 is that 
bitch, Clarissa Clemens, um, Professor Martin Stein's ex-wife, who I hate with the passion of a thousand burning suns. The lilac, what I call her, the lilac tinted whore, I think is what her nickname I is. I think so. She's bad news all the way around, and I'm sorry. For those of you who don't listen to the Firestorm one, they're probably all aghast at my horrible things I'm saying about this woman right now. She's bad people. Anyway, you, you got a drawing by Joe Brozowski and Art Nichols. And, uh, you know, I kind of like Art Nichols' inking, by the way. He did some cool Star Wars inking. But anyway, you've got this shadowy group in front of a bunch of computers at a gla- you know, at a table, like have, being very Star Chamber-ish, making decisions about the future of the world. And then you've got on these monitor screens, you see top... T- Tokamak, and he's fat. Look, I see how fat he is right there. Mm-hmm. That's how fat he's supposed to look. Tokamak and Firehawk. You see Firestorm and Multiplex. You see uh, Breathtaker, and you see Slipknot. Slipknot. Yep, Slipknot. The uh, 2000 committee was responsible for the introduction of Slipknot. Check it out. So they, um, you know, they were kind of like the shadowy group that would just throw bad guys at Firestorm for a while. It's kind of what it was. I don't know that they had a really good payoff in the end. Uh, I don't. We'll find out. It's kind of an era I'm a little fuzzy on because I haven't reread in years, so we'll have to find out if the payoff's good or not. But um, anyway, yeah, so they're responsible for sending a lot of bad guys at Firestorm. So I am sure that Inker Art Nickel sent DC a bill for one page of Zipatone. <laughs> you think that's what all that is? All that? Oh, I see it now. Yeah, you're right. There is a bunch of Zipatone there, isn't there? Huh. I think he had a page of Zipatone and he used it all up, and he's like, well, DC should pay for this for getting the new page of Zipatone. a lot of black ink, too. Just, jeez. Yeah. So. Um, but I do like the sort of shadowy group, you know, of people controlling. Yeah, things. yeah. It's, it's unusual that you're, you're purposely not showing the faces of the people. So it conveys what they are. Yeah, it's nice. Up next, another Firestorm character. And we said, what are the odds of that? We said we weren't going to have any Firestorm this month. We were just kidding. Up next, uh, Typhoon, one of my favorite ones. And as Luke Giaconetti would say, the soul of the storm. Uh, is a typhoon. So, again, drawn by Joe Brozowski and Steve Mitchell. Uh, again, Joe Brozowski was drawing Firestorm at this point, so he's the ideal artist. Besides being a house artist on Who's Who, he's an ideal artist to draw Firestorm characters. you got Typhoon in the foreground. He's spinning out of his water... It's essentially a water tornado. And he's sort of coming out of the top of it. He's a blue dude with long reddish hair and glowing red eyes. In the background, you see a close-up of his face. You see lots of clouds and stuff. You see him on the bottom kidnapping his children. And you see him blasting Firestorm. Um, I'm not real impressed with the art piece. No, not really. Joe does some really good stuff, and Joe does some blah stuff. This is a blah piece. You know, kind of sad. Now, the character, though, the character is amazing. He's a, it's such a tragic story. I mean, he's just this guy. He's this family guy who's, you know, on this in this bathysphere for a scientific experiment. He's getting ready to go down and, and test out this new nuclear bathysphere. And he gets caught up in all this crap. There's a storm. There's an asshole, you know, captain of the ship. You know, he gets, he gets shot uh, at no fault of his own. And he goes down in the water in this bathysphere. You know, he's going to die. There's a nuclear experiment. You know, reaction of some sort, and he would have died if Firestorm hadn't saved him. So Firestorm saves him, brings him back up, and he turns into Typhoon, who's sort of, uh, kind of nuts because this the rage and fury of the storms have sort of make him sort of raging and furious. So he's kind of a nut job. Then, when he finally is beaten and he's in a hospital recovering, his wife divorces him and remarries. So his kids don't even really remember him, and they consider their stepfather their father, and it's just this poor guy. Really, he didn't do anything wrong. So, um, he's usually someone's, you know, is a criminal, and they're robbing banks or something. This poor guy just, his life spiraled out of control, so I've always felt really bad for him. So, neat character, though. Neat character. One of the Firestorm's earliest bad guys who ended up in a cancel issue. Actually, issue number six that never saw light of print until uh, a recent trade paperback, so. Hmm. Got anything on this guy? 
Yeah, it's it's kind of a boring entry. I mean, I like the character from what we've seen in the books, but yeah, this entry and the logo is kind of like eh. yeah. There's no reason for that logo to be that boring. He didn't ever. He's yeah. never had a logo. So up next, tier. Interesting. Or I always say tier. I guess it could be tire. I always say tier though. Interesting character in that he is probably one of the most well-known Legion villains, solely for the reason there was a superpowers figure. Yep. So he's got this really awesome boss mechanical arm, which is so cool. How does he not tip over? He's really strong. <laughs> he's got a lot of shoulder strength, I guess. But he uh, he's seven feet tall, is massive dude, 30th century warlord, but he um, very little text. You know, huge, huge drawing by Dennis Cohen and Dick Giordano. you got Tear in the foreground actually resting his foot on his own logo to show how much of a boss he is. In the background, you see, like, his warlord ship. You see a close-up of his mohawk face. He's red-skinned with a mohawk. And he's got this giant yellow mechanical arm, which I've always – I wonder if it always looked sort of that goofy or just they decided to follow the superpowers design for it. I don't know. Mm. He's firing his arm at um, – that Ultra Boy, and then you see some of the other Legionnaires looking on beneath him, and then um, looks like maybe uh, Cosmic Boy is wrapping him up in metal or something, you know, at the bottom there. So, it's a nice entry. The guys did a decent job drawing it, and uh, again, the main thing to know is he's just he's this warlord of a mobile planet called uh, Tiraz. So, it's like part of his name, Tyr, and then Tiraz. And, uh, again, not a lot of text, and he's got a really awesome mechanical arm. And my Legion fans are probably going, no, there's so much more to know about this guy. Well, the problem is... Why does everybody's voice get so high? I don't understand that. Why can't they just ask, like, normal people? I know. I know. It's a thing. It's it's a thing. But anyway, my, my only real exposure to this guy is in the Legion of Superheroes cartoon. I have never read a comic with this guy. Except maybe if he appeared in one of the Superpowers comics. So, If they ever made a Legion of Superheroes live-action movie, he would have to be played by Danny Trejo. Who? Oh my God, Chad! Go outside. I I go outside. To get, I make these to cultural get to references, and you're like, "Who? Machete." I've heard of it. Oh, good, good for you. Next, another Legion character that I've never read anything about. Um, Tyrock. He's very well known, though. He's very well known amongst Legion fans. Uh, Excuse me, ma'am. There's a package to be delivered. <laughs> We'll just let that lie. Drawn by Norm Brayfogle in actually one of his earliest comic book appearances. He had drawn a handful of comics at this point, including some like new talent showcases and stuff. And he had done one issue of Legion. So then to draw that, I mean, it makes sense for him to draw this because of his Legion connection. But he was really new on the scene at this point. And, uh, you know, of course, I, I love him from his Batman, det- or specifically his detective work. And then, of course, Prime and, and many, and many other series. I love Brayfogle. So, Tyrock is an interesting character. He's from an island. Uh, the last guy had a mobile... <laughs> the last guy had a mobile uh, planet. This guy has got a migrant island. The island itself, called Mars Marzal, actually travels around to alternate Earths and alternate timelines. That's a really cool idea. It reminds me of sort of Danny the Street from uh, Doom Patrol, but really, really a neat idea. Now, uh, Tyrock is... Uh, his, his Folks, his folks from the island have really had to deal with racial prejudice a lot, so they're very nervous about you know him joining the Legion. But he eventually signs up. He's not a member for a long time, I don't believe, but he joins up to help, and uh, he wears booties. So you know they're they're covering over a little. They're trying to paper over the original concept behind Tyrox's oh, origin. Yeah. What's that? 
which was in the 30th century. Mm-hmm. Um, blacks had such a difficult time getting along with whites that they moved to their own planet. <gasps> yeah. Yeah. No. Yes, that was the original idea. And because uh, I remember I read an article on it years later, it was like one of these, like, can you believe they published that? <laughs> you know, it's like <gasps> so racist. So, yeah, I think DC later on were like, uh, yeah, so they just sort of paper over that here in the, uh, in the listing. The drawing is great. Yeah. The drawing is superb. First of all, Brayfogle gets a ton of stuff in the serpent while giving Tyrox as the main image one of the biggest figures. In all of who's who. He's huge. I mean, he is almost from tip to tip, you know. And the line work is all sort of pointing all in the same direction. So you feel like it's sort of shooting out of you, which is the way his power works with his voice. It is a great drawing. I mean, the character is just goofy beyond all words. The costume is just unbelievable. Um, well, he's a big, but- big muscular black guy. He's, he's wearing essentially a white Speedo with, you know, a, like a, a white vest with a huge collar. <laughs> yeah, yeah. More than manhunter size collar. Yeah, amazingly. And he said his he's got huge muscles, uh, including the package well, it's going brave, on there. It's Fogel, and so yeah. yeah. But but I mean the drawing itself is just outstanding. Yeah, yep. In the background, you've got you know him and the Legion facing off against the Fatal Five. Um, and, ooh, look at that Phantom Girl. Wow. Anyway, you got him yelling. You've got him like some weird space. space things in the air, I don't know what that is, and a crowd raging at him, or cheering him on, I don't know which, but uh, very cool, like you said, amazing art, great entry, I like how it's kind of an upshot too, you're like looking at him almost yep. heroically, yep. and uh, he's staring off into the distance as if, you know, worlds to conquer, and uh, it's a nice, nice piece, really cool, mm-hmm. so I'm sort of ashamed that two Legion characters in a row that I know very little about, so... <laughs> This was the character that Russell Burbage forgot to mention in the little Legion graphic that he asked me to make, and I'm the one who said, didn't you forget Tyrock? From the Legion of Superbloggers. That's true. So, all right. Next up, Ultra by Eric Larson and uh, Mike Macklin, a character that I've tried to love so many times, but I just can't. I hate him. So, he's, uh, at this point, by the way, uh, Eric Larson, interesting pick. This is his first DC work. Prior to this, he's really well known for doing Megaton Man. You know, like, Savage Dragon's not even, like, uh, a dream at this point. Megaton Man is, is where Larson was living. He wasn't even really doing a lot for Marvel yet at this point either. So, it's interesting to pick him up. And Ultra is, he's wearing an all-purple costume, like, giant purple thigh-high boots, and a purple sort of vest thing and lots of muscles and flowing red hair. He is essentially the Superman of Earth Prime is, is the short version of that. But it's, his origin is in, in his adventures in the Justice League are so confusing. And I've always wanted to like this guy. And every time I read one, my brain just hurts and I just don't care by the <laughs> end. He, he came to Earth in Earth Prime. And he was the first superpowered character on Earth Prime. And then the Justice League come over there and they decide he can't stay there. So he comes to Earth 1. Then all of a sudden he decides to get rid of all the superheroes. And then Superman locks him up in a pri- one of Superman's special little Superman Island prisons. And then there's a lawyer who tries to get him out of prison, out of Superman's prison, saying it's unconstitutional. And damn it, they're absolutely right. It is unconstitutional for Superman to lock someone in a prison. Anyway. Uh, I really, really try to like this character. Like, as a Justice League reader growing up, did you hate this guy too? Or was it like, ooh, Ultra's in the next issue? Well, neither one. I mean, I didn't hate him, but I wasn't like, ooh, great, Ultra. And part of the problem is, this is a Jerry Conway creation. Um, I always felt like Jerry wanted to bring him into the Justice League as a member. 
but never quite pulled the trigger for okay. some reason because like every issue would end with ultra like well i guess i don't have a home <laughs> and you feel like the justice league you feel like it was like you know ahem, ahem, <laughs> you know and uh, you satellite sure is big and they're like well by ultra you know i mean they were uh we <laughs> got to make room for prison. we got to make room for red tornado to rejoin um so <laughs> it's like, I don't know. Part of the problem is every story that I think Jerry wanted to make ultra a member, but part of the problem was every single story that ultra appears in involves with him getting fooled by somebody evil. Right. So it made him look like an idiot. Um, he's like the squadron Supreme. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I, that, I think that's why it didn't work. This listing is interesting in that it features probably the only serpent of a man punching the crap out of wonder woman. Which oh. is interesting. Oh. You know, hey, she's super powered. She can take it. Oh, yeah. And it also features the single saddest final paragraph of any listing <laughs> because it talks about that Ultra is the one surviving creature uh, being from this race that died out. But it mentions in the Reform DC universe, Maxitron wasn't able to save any of its charges. The space arc was vaporized by the sun, spilling the end to a once great civilization. <laughs> It was just like, oh, yeah, just before we go, by the way, oh, everybody from that planet died, not Ultra. Okay, thanks, bye. Like, <laughs> okay, then. <laughs> so, Well, uh, Post-Crisis then overturns that down the line, and he does reappear. And right. I want to say it's in Justice League Unlimited, maybe, or something? Not Unlimited. Um, what was the quarterly book? I don't know. Whatever the quarter, quarterly, I guess it was. Justice League Quarterly. Yeah. yeah, surprise. Anyway, Justice League Quarterly. Uh, Marvel had the unlimited books. That's right, X Men Unlimited. So, uh, and he was kind of doofy. And I want to say maybe him and Maxima ended up. If not together, then they should have ended up together. They're both long, red-haired, purple-wearing people. So, anyway, I really did want to like the character. Like, I even tried to introduce him into a role-playing game at one point, and then I'd read some of his comics, and I'm like, I hate him. I hate <laughs> him so much. Up next, Ultra Boy Jonah, one of my favorite Legionnaires. This guy's totally badass. Art by Ron Friends and Bruce Patterson. Ron Friends, at this point, mostly known as a Marvel artist. Uh, well, I guess he kind of always stays a Marvel artist, doesn't he? So, uh, kind of interesting to get him on here. Now, if you don't know much about Jonah, um, just his name's a dead giveaway. His powers come from the story of you know Jonah and the whale. Well, he goes and gets inside a space whale, basically. It's really a space dragon. It's somehow descended from a Kryptonian dragon, uh, which I don't really understand, but he, apparently that's how that works. And he goes inside this space dragon and gets powers from it. And he has, basically he has Superboy's powers, but he can only use them one at a time, which makes for a really interesting character. And I like also they go on here to talk about how later on, early on in his career, they faked a criminal past for him so he could infiltrate a gang. And uh, the only person who had faith in him was Phantom Girl, who he then, uh, they fell in love and had a relationship, and she's super hot, so I'm A-OK with that. The foreground, he's kind of small in the foreground, but he's just got this great costume. I always love that green. I always, it always looks Native American to me, but the the green whatever across his chest, moose head, I don't know. And then um, he's got some, I mean, his costume's strange. It's it's red shirt with the green sort of thing, green belt, green trunk, darker green trunks, and red sort of flaky booties, uh, flange booties. But it just works on him. He just looks so cool. Um Anyway, uh, and he's kissing Tina, which is Phantom Girl. He's going into the space well. He's fighting a bunch of people. And then you've got a controller in the bottom getting ready to do something nasty. So, nice piece. Yeah. yeah as, a, I, as a non-Legion person, what you got for me? Oh, it's a gorgeous piece. I mean, I look back and I'm thinking every single piece that Ron Friends did for Uzu is great. Mm-hmm. And I'm starting to like, boy, this guy was under unappreciated, you know? Uh, Still is. This is 
really a beautiful drawing, and it actually makes Ultra Boy look way more interesting than I ever considered him to be. Um, one thing that would have been kind of fun would have, would have been a little bit to coordinate, but in the tier listing, it would have been funny if in the Serpent you see Tier firing the arm, and then in this listing you see the arm hitting Ultra Boy. Oh, like they did with Flash and Fiddler. Yeah, yeah that would yeah. have been cool. Okay. Um, but the drawing is great. I mean, it really is... It's 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 fantastic, and Bruce Patterson does nice things. And I, I, Friends is one of these guys. I'm like, oh, geez, I just really unappreciated him because this is really beautiful and like perfect comic book art, superhero art. You know, whenever I think about him, I guess he's he's really well known for a long run on Spider Girl. I guess it is, and that's a that's a very beloved book, Spider Girl. And I hope I'm getting that right. I'm pretty sure it's Spider Girl. You know, he did some Fantastic Four too. He did a bunch of stuff. He okay. did tons of stuff. But I just – Spider-Girl has this, is this long-running book. He drew like 100 issues of it or something like oh, that. Oh, wow. Tom DeFalco wrote it. It's a very 90s kind of book even though it came out in the 2000s. And it always makes me kind of want to read it because it sounds interesting and, and I love Ron Friends' stuff. So might be worth checking out. I don't know. Uh, write in if you read it. So next up, Ultra Humanite, Major JSA Batty, uh, art by, interesting enough, John uh, Statham. Statham. Statma. Statma and Jerry Ordway together. And uh, this is actually only the third piece of art re- that I could find reference for this guy, Statma. And uh, interesting to have Ordway ink him. And he goes on, this Stat- Statma guy goes on to actually draw some Ultraverse books as well, like Solution and, and Prime and things like that. So do you, are you familiar with him? Because I'm not. I looked him up too because I was like I I never really looked that closely at this thing. I always assumed it was Ordway mm-hmm. the whole time because it looks very Ordwayish. And then I was like, "Who's John Stetman?" And I looked it up and I saw the same thing you did that he did a bunch of Ultraverse. So I'm like, "Ooh, we can look. I can look forward to hearing about that on the Ultraverse podcast and not understanding it." Uh, so, uh, <laughs> we'll but still I mean, make fun of you though. Don't worry. Yeah, it's very it's very Ordway. I mean, Ordway really yes. dominates it, uh, yes. which is fine. It's only appropriate because it's a, you know we're two characters. I think Ultra Humanite must have the most amount of first appearances. <laughs> He's got an original body as Winters. As insect form, in ape form, in original, and you know, so there you go, you know, it's like extra crispy, original right. recipe, I mean, it just goes <laughs> on and on and on. I did learn something reading this. Uh, obviously, I knew about his original form, I knew about Dolores Winters, who, by the way, is smoking hot, I knew about the, the great ape, but then, uh, great ape, I'm going to call him great ape for now, <laughs> but anyway, and uh, the insect form? I had no idea he took over the body of a giant flying ant at one point. <laughs> that had to be the 50s. It had to be. Like, it's like, where is it? What the hell? Where did this come from? <laughs> so, anyway, super genius. Well, it actually says in insect form, Superman family number 214. That's the 70s. Is it really? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Oh, that must be about the same time they did uh, Lana Lang as insect queen or whatever. So. The Jimmy Olsen book got changed to, to Superman family in the 70s. They changed the title. Really? So that, that was yeah. the old Jimmy Olsen book? Yes. I didn't know that. They continued the, They folded all the Superman ancillary titles yeah. into Superman Family and picked up Jimmy Olsen's numbering into, into Superman Family. Wow. I picked up a Superman Family issue not too long ago, actually. We found it in a cheap bin. So. Um, genius, scientist, wants to dominate the world. Uh, appeared a lot in JSA books, uh, All-Star Squadron, Infinity Inc., you name it. And uh, he's still a pain in the ass today. So had some he really was used to, He was used to great effect in the Justice League Unlimited cartoon as well. Beat me to it. There, that's exactly what I was working on saying. Yep. Sorry. No, no, no. Nothing to apologize for. He was really good in that comic. I mean, in that cartoon, actually. Really, really good. So, but was it 
Was Kelsey Grammer his voice? I don't think I remember. I don't think so, but I don't remember. But it was a very educated sort of, yeah. you know, yep, yep, yep. sort yep. of voice, yeah. Next entry is one that sort of blew my mind. Um, I mean, I think my brain exploded and then reformed and then just didn't know what to do with itself after doing this one. This one's, I don't even remember seeing this entry in my entire life until we started reading this book. Do you, do you remember this thing? Uh, yeah, I do. I do. I remember the entry. I mean, started, I've never seen the character outside of this because I never had any of these comics. Gary Concord, the Ultraman. Yep. And he is from an alternate world where the gist of it is he, he was born around World War I. And he was a war orphan. And in this alternate timeline, by age 21, he was the greatest military tactician in history. And he delayed World War II from happening. So eventually World War II creeps up and starts to happen in the 1950s. At that point, he gets suspended, put in suspended animation by this foam. Uh, and he wakes up... Your friends of Aquaman. <laughs> right. They, they just pile on him. <laughs> he can't breathe. Uh, and he wakes up in 2174. And there he's fighting for peace. He's fighting these tyrants, and it's sort of a future time. And he, he, he looks sort of futury. Um, anyway, and he ends up battling this tyrant and marries the tyrant's daughter. And then the tyrant ends up murdering the daughter um, before after he has a, a child. So ultimately, there's his son is the current Ultraman, I guess, and has taken over the job. Much like there's several different Ultraman in the Japanese show. There's apparently multiple. There's there's two Ultramen in this alternate future. And the art is so funky. It's Marshall Rogers, Rogers, which, you know, he's a straightforward artist. And this art is so weird. I mean, he's got to be mimicking whoever the original artist was on this, i got to think. Uh, yeah, I just I have no idea. Uh, I mean, I, I read this history, and I have to think that the character is just a sort of smooshing together of, like, a Flash Gordon and H.G. Wells. Because H.G. Wells had a lot of these concepts. H.G. Wells wrote a book called uh, The Shape of Things to Come, which was made into a very boring movie called The Shape of Things to Come, which is features a lot of... H.G. Uh, Wells had a lot of ideas about like what was going to happen in the future and like governments and society and a lot of social stuff that he was interested in, unfortunately. iPhones? From the little I, huh? iPhones? Yes. Okay. From the, yes. But from the little I've read, like that stuff that he wrote, those those like sort of social tracks that he wrote are boring as hell. Hmm. So it's like the stuff you know, the stuff of his that you know is War of the Worlds, Invisible Man, Time Machine, you know. But that's that he considered that stuff like his off work, <laughs> and this other stuff was the stuff he really cared about. But nobody liked that stuff because that stuff was just incredibly boring. And this kind of sounds like that. This this reminds me a little. Not that it's boring, but it just sounds like whoever created the Ultraman had read a lot of H.G. Wells because it just feels like it, it has that that similar feeling to it. Okay. Interesting. He has the ugliest helmet of all time, too. Like, it's like from the front, it looks ridiculous. And the side, you're kind of like, oh, that's what it's supposed to look like? Yeah. And, you know, we went 23 issues without a hero in shorts, and now we have two in one book. <laughs> well, Aqualad had shorts on. The, but those were, like, skin-tight shorts. These oh, are, like, yeah. tr- you know, like, sh- Actual, you know, like... Actual, genuine uh, shorts, yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I'll give you that. All right. Coming up next, uh, Ultra the Multi-Alien, one oh, of Rob Kelly's favorite characters, his jam. Drawn by Terry Beatty and Dennis Jensen. And Terry Beatty at this point is really well known for Miss Tree and uh, by another public Eclipse, I think, and had done Double an entry in an issue or two ago, too, as yep. well. Ultra the Multi-Alien, uh, interesting story. Basically, this dude gets zapped by four aliens, and they all have these duplicator guns. What the duplicator guns do is they duplicate who you are 
And when you shoot someone, they sort of turn into you. And four different people were shooting at the four different aliens were all shooting at the same time. So basically, he split into four quadrants, <laughs> and each one's different. One half is like a like maybe a green lizard man with white hair, and other side's like a smooth blue half. Then one leg's like electricity, and the other leg's like a bird feathery talon thing. It's hilarious. <laughs> we do not know uh, how his wang was affected. Yikes! Well, you had to go there. Um, I don't know if you're aware of this, Rob. Uh, Ultra is the multi alien is actually a focus point of the Justice League United New Fifty Two comic book on the shelves right now. The formerly Justice League Canada book. Ultra the multi alien is a major. I had no idea. Yeah, I had it's a major no idea at all. Ultra huh. is a genetically engineered child who was created based on several different races to have all their different traits, and now he's in the protection of the Justice League United. Can you hear me rolling my eyes? And the Legion of Superheroes are on their way back in time to come murder him. <laughs> That's what's happening. <laughs> okay. So, to tell me tell me why you love this guy so much. All right. I discovered this guy through the aforementioned video comic series, that Nickelodeon show, Jeez. where they read comics on the air. Yeah, yeah. And they, for some reason, they picked Ultra the Multi-Alien stories. And I still, in my head, can hear the announcer, Ultra the Multi-Alien. And <laughs> I just... I just love the concept. It's just so ridiculous that yeah, I love it. Is. it. Yeah, it is. And I just love his visual. I just, I just find it utterly charming. I love the original artwork was was done by um, Lee Elias, who stuff whose stuff I always really liked. I think Lee Elias had died by this point, so they couldn't get him back to do this listing. Terry Beatty and Dennis Nissen do a great job. They sort of give it a sort of old schooly look. I mean, Terry Beatty had an old schooly look, so he couldn't what? help it. I like the. I see. I felt it was kind of cutting edge because it looks all kind of sketchy and. and really? Yeah. No, no, no. I feel I mean, it's it looks cool. like kind of old school. I mean, it's again. I mean it as a compliment. It's not meant as a knock. Um, but I mean, they got Terry Beatty to do the terrible trio, and that was purposely oh, freaking gave me nightmares. Fifties looking look. So I think that's what they're doing here. I love his logo, his multicolored logo, the different fonts. I just love everything about this guy. I just think it's just it's just one of those like, like fun little corners of the DCU. The stories were very simple, um, and I like that whoever wrote this decided to give him a happy ending because it says those whereabouts are currently unknown. It is presumed that Arn married his fiance. Bonnie, Denton, Blake, and is living happily ever after. Oh, sure. He could so. transform back and forth between human and ultramilk, couldn't he? Right. Yeah. Now, he never appeared in like a JLA issue or anything? No, as far as I know, as far as I know, he only ever appeared in Mystery in Space, oh. in the, his feature in Mystery in Space. So. Now, if I'm remembering correctly, and we'll find out in about four years or so, um, I think the ultra multi-alien entry in the loose leaf who's who, which I can't reach with this short cord on my headset. Uh, I think it's like John K. Schneider. John K. It is John K. Schneider. It's yep. so cool. And that's good too. Yeah. I mean yeah. like that entry alone made me fascinated with this character. I was just like, wow, that's cool. Him and Two-Face probably have a lot to talk to each other about. They, they should. They totally And that should. Legion villain who had the robot junk. Oh, uh, uh, the, Therak or whatever Therak something from like the, uh, the the Fatal Five I'm, yeah. try, I'm trying to throw down with the Legion knowledge but I'm not doing too good there am I no, I love this guy I absolutely just please put this guy in the Tumblr I just dig this okay. guy so much. yeah done deal up next Uncle Sam by Murphy Anderson and it's a very old school sort of drawing it is exactly as you would expect Uncle Sam you know from the United States post office <laughs> you know the, the posters you know you know so he's he's jumping Sam wants you. yes he uh leaping down and you see in the background like uh 
He's fighting somebody on a plane. Then he's carrying the American flag and punching out a Ratsy, I think. And he's leading the slash uh, Freedom Fighter slash All-Star Squadron running at you. And his logo is very, uh, uh, what have patriotic. So, and he is the embodiment of the American spirit. He is the embodiment of the American spirit fused with the body of a guy named Samuel, conveniently. And, uh, and then in, one, in two paragraphs, they mention Earth X six times. <laughs> I counted. Just saying. <laughs> so it's a great character, you know. Like as a kid, I couldn't like I couldn't get on board with Uncle Sam being in a comic. I just thought it was ludicrous. I was like, this is stupid. You know, he's not a comic. He's not a comic book superhero. He's just an idea for you know a, an army recruitment effort. You know, come on. And then as I got older and read some Freedom Fighters and stuff, like I'm kind of on board with the character now. I, I, I kind of dig him. He was not a, he's not a DC character creation. He was purchased from Quality Comics because uh, he first appeared in National Comics number one. That was a quality series, so he's a purchase. And then uh, later on, DC allowed him to be the subject of a two-issue sort of uh, prestige format series uh, drawn by Alex Ross. Oh, yeah. Was, that was more about the changing of American society. Yeah, though. I mean, it was, it was, it was definitely a social – huh? Vertigo book, right? I don't remember being Vertigo. I don't. I could be wrong, but uh, but uh, yeah, it was. I I remember enjoying that series. Um, I, I think a lot of it does depend on your sort of political viewpoint, whether you get more out of it than, than others. But because uh, Alex Ross's political viewpoint is, he fairly well wears that on his sleeve. Uh, but I th- I remember just thinking I thought it was gutsy that DC even allowed it to be published because mm-hmm. they were taking one of their characters, admittedly one of their minor characters, and sort of bringing him through this stuff that some people could probably find relatively touchy. So I thought it was pretty gutsy. Um, yeah, I don't have a whole lot to say about him. I remember I liked him in the Freedom Fighters when that when they had their own book and stuff. So uh, he's probably the only character that has those little garter booty things over his shoes. <laughs> That's why he's famous, folks. Yeah. <laughs> Up next, unimaginable, bizarre entry. Another one of these that I just don't remember ever seeing until reading for this episode. Uh, art by again Eric Larson uh, with uh, inking by Paul Neary, which is pretty cool. Weird, weird, weird character. Being a JLA reader, you must be familiar with this guy. But if I'm encapsulating this right, he wanted to join the JLA about the same time Metamorpho was invited to join. Yes. But he's not really a living entity. Like in the the Serpent, he's just a lightning bolt. Right. And I guess they weren't even aware he was there. And eventually he caused a supernova. Yes, yes. Well, it's a member. It's a Gardner Fox plot. You got you to explain this thing because I, I don't really. I only barely remember it. He really doesn't deserve a listing. I have to say, he appeared, I think, twice uh, in all the comics, and and not that the story isn't good. The one where he, because the the issue where he first appeared is JLA forty two, which is the one where Metamorph, Metamorph, the famous one, Metamorpho says no, mm-hmm. returns down the JLA. Uh, but he really doesn't deserve his own listing. This does feel like they had an extra page. I'm kind of sad that they couldn't get Mike Sikowski to draw it because Mike Sikowski did come back to do some stuff for DC around this time. Hmm. Um, so it would have been nice to get him to do it, but I guess for whatever reason they couldn't. So Eric Larson gets another shot after doing Ultra, another GLA character. He does right. this one. Well, so. I'll tell you what makes this whole thing worth it is Metamorpho turning his arm into a piano yes. and hitting somebody with it because that's just – 18 kinds of amazing. I didn't know he could do that, turn into a friggin' piano. I knew he could turn into shapes, but a friggin' piano? Really? <laughs> can he do that? I guess so. He can change his form, so why not? That's awesome. Just smash with a giant piano. 
there's some weird writing in this too. Like um, they talk about how they gotten beat up and everything, and then in the last line, in parentheses, it says the JLAers recovered with a period of total rest, <laughs> which is something like straight out of D and D. Like if you get injured. You can recover at certain speeds, and the and the quickest way to recover is total rest or complete rest or whatever the term is, where you can't do anything. So it's like it reads like an RPG sort of thing. Like, what is so weird? So, <laughs> I believe that the very next issue of Justice League was an all reprint issue, so they took that month off. Yeah, perfect. There it is. Okay, last entry of the book, and oof, what a way to go out! It's gorgeous. Greg Larock and uh, Arnie is it Arnie or Aim. I always assumed it was Arn. Arn. Arn Star. So, Greg LaRock and Arn Star, and it's Universo. Awesome. Gorgeous art. One of the Legion's big bads. He looks like a total boss. He looks almost like Ming the Merciless, really. Yeah. He's bald head. He's got a monocle. He's got the pointed ears with earrings and a goatee, and he's got his arms crossed. Now, one of the things that makes this guy famous is he used to be a Green Lantern. And he tried to pull the shame shtick as Kronos and peel back, you know, the veil and, and look at the beginning of Dawn of Time. And uh, he got in trouble with the, the core for that. Anyway, he, and now he's sort of like a mastermind manipulator. And he has a son named Ron Vidar who plays a big role in the Legion. And he is just a total awesome, awesome dude. And in every incarnation of the Legion, he's badass. He really is. It's a nice drawing. I mean, it's a, it definitely – he's got – it's almost like a um, – he looks a little Nazi-ish, hmm, okay. uh, except for the pointed ears and stuff. And the way his heels are clicked, you can almost hear the click-click of the Nazi boots being slapped together. It has that kind of yavol kind of look to it. That works. Um, yeah. it's a, it is. It's a very nice drawing. Serpent, you see him as a green lantern. You see him. Forgive me, it's very late. Um, you see him with his son, Rond, and you see him like uh, blasting the Legion or hypnotizing them or something. So um, there's no noticeable skills in personal combat. But, um, let's see, he's got a glowing green eye, uh, artifact of power. Oh, I thought of, oh, hypnosis, there it is. Okay, talks about hypnosis, yep. So, really great looking drawing. Absolutely love that one. Great, great way to go out on the issue. Then you got the inside back cover, which features six really cool covers. You get Superman number one by John Byrne. You get Teen Titans, which is not so great, except it's got a, like a, Wow, that picture of Wonder Girl is kind of trashy. But anyway, I mean, that's really inappropriate. Uh, you've got a Batman cover. Uh, you got a Firestorm one. Cosmic Boy didn't stand a chance, but does Firestorm up against Brimstone for a Legends crossover. You get your Phantom Stranger cover for one of those famous issues where they told four different origins for him, which I always thought was very clever. Yeah, great book. And you get an Outsiders cover. Interesting facts. Talks about, again, Titano is now a fond memory from Superman stories from the past. And it mentions TNT may join the young All-Star... I, TNT and Dan may join the Young All-Stars, and Tsunami will be a Young All-Star. So that's really all the, the big things that jumped out at me on that. Yeah, I mean, it said it's the funny thing about Titano. is like, sadly, Titano is gone. Well, at least until next year. Right. <laughs> and that issue is a wrap. Um, it's a good issue, you know? It, it doesn't have – I mean, it, actually, you know what? I take that. I was going to say it doesn't have major headliners, but it does. I mean, Ultra Boy is a major headliner. Trigon at this point would be a major headliner. You know, Two Face major headliner. So yeah, this issue. Works. Ultra the multi-humanite. Ultra the uh, ultra the multi-humanite. Is that what you just said? Yeah, that's my combined character that I'm working on. Apparently so. It's in your fanfic. So yeah, um, I dug it. You know. Yeah. Of, yes. Absolutely. All right. Well, now, folks, we're going to move on to 
who's who, hows, and whys, which is your feedback from previous episodes. Um, and we have a new way of trying to do this, so we're going to see how this goes. Here right, we go. Got an email from Zoom Yukinori, our pal. Great show again, gentlemen. And regarding the comment regarding Aisha Tyler and Starfish, I suspect Alexander Osiris actually meant to type Starfire from the New Teen Titans, but an autocorrect function helped decided to help him help him spell it. Of course, only Alexander and Miss Tyler know for sure. He also goes on to say, as for why Barry Allen was in the serpent of the thinker, because I asked that question the last issue, because I was like, wait a minute, he's not mentioned anywhere. What's up with that? He says, I suspect that was a nod to the story of Flash, Volume 1, number 229, where he and Jay Garrick teamed up to fight him. It was actually an interesting story in which the thinker made Jay Garrick believe that he was getting a little incompetent as a crime fighter in his old age. So sad. <laughs> then we... Uh, Zoom has given us a tease. You guys may remember a couple issues back, he put together a Superman of Earth One entry for Who's Who, which we loved with uh, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise his name. Artwork. Well, he is working on a Wonder Woman of Earth One entry for us as well. And he has given us a little tease, and it is literally a sliver of it. And you tell me, Rob, who's that artwork? Is it? Is that I can't it? really tell from that. I, re- I really can't. I, I'm thinking it's also Jose as well, Could at be. least on the main image, not the surf print, but I don't know. And it's, um, it's you know, it looks, even just that little sliver, you can tell it's so 70s. So that's yep. great. So bronze. I can't wait to see it, guys. We've got a couple more issues to go. I can hear the Wonder Woman theme song playing. Dun, 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 dun. All right. We heard from our buddy Ange, who runs the Supergirl blog. And he has, uh, he actually was given an award by Comic Book Resources as being the only fan who cares about Reactron. Um, <laughs> I just made that up, but uh, not, he really is the only fan who cares. I really, but. I, I was believing that for a second. <laughs> uh, he wrote to says, as for Reactron, that character, because this was in the Tempest one, I was like, is that Reactron of the Tempest serpent again? Because Reactron just keeps showing up. As for Reactron, that character was Tempest's commanding officer in Vietnam. When Tempest saw Reactron gun down civilians in the war, Tempest's powers manifested and he attacked Reactron. Tempest then went AWOL, so the two are linked enough to warrant the Serpent. And he goes, I know way too much about Reactron. <laughs> yes, you do. Yes, you do. <laughs> and admitting you have a problem is the first step. And um, regarding Ten-Eyed Man, what a wild character who I also love for his zaniness. How does he make a fist or anything requiring his hands to be closed? Would that make him go blind? <laughs> That's how his girl, you know, girl, your girlfriend would like always sneak up and cover your eyes and go, guess who? She just like holds his hand. Guess who? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then he tweeted out to us, before he listened to the episode, he tweeted out to us a snapshot picture from a Batman Brave in the Bull cartoon, a Batmite reading an episode, an issue of Who's Who, and basically saying, hey guys, do you remember this? Well, we do in fact, because Rob was sneaky enough to put that in as the stinger at the end. How could I not? <laughs> I had forgotten. But Batman Brave in the Bold, Ten-Eyed Man appeared in Batman Brave in the Bold, and and Batmite actually whips out a Who's Who comic, This that Who's Who comic we covered, and reads the, the Ten-Eyed Man entry, which is hysterical. Yep. <laughs> I love that show. <laughs> <laughs> so much fun. Uh, we got an email from Siskoid. He says regarding the tattooed man. Just before- you know, none of these are emails, right? They're just comments on the blog and stuff. Oh, all right, okay, <laughs> comments on the blog. Uh, we got a comment from Siskoid regarding the tattooed man. Just before the new fifty-two, tattooed man was Mark Richards, who even had his own series as an anti-hero type in Gotham. In the new fifty-two, tattooed man exists as Tats. Of course, he does. A female <laughs> version who has appeared in World's Finest. Now, which is really funny, is that. 
a female version of the tattooed man feels like the kind of world finest villain that appeared in around the number 300s back when they were trying to push the book in the DC sampler. Oh, funny. And it had all those loser villains that you, me and Frank lost our shit over when we did that episode. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I have no interest in seeing a badass version of the tattooed man. I know, even though I said, I'm surprised there isn't one, but I it just, that just seems just way too silly for me. See, you, you just jumped right over the part I wanted to talk about, where he says he even had his own series? Yeah, I didn't even, yeah. What? Because <laughs> that would have just been a few years ago, and I don't remember this. What the hell? All right. He goes on to say, Titan's Tower, and then in all caps, out of alphabetical order! <laughs> that OCD outburst aside, yeah, it's okay. I like how the vehicles pop out from the Serpent, but for my money, the DC Heroes RPG has the best tower maps and diagrams available. And boy, is he telling the truth there. Uh, he mentioned Sia being on two Who's Who covers. Thank you for that. Uh, good catch. Uh, and then... You may recall, uh, Siskoid also puts together these Who's This entries over on his own blog. And he these are sort of breaks down minor characters from Who's Who and really delves into their history. And he covered uh, Ten-Eyed Man and the Terrible Trio. And uh, you can find those out at siskoid.blogspot.ca. And I think he's already done Tommy Tomorrow. I think he's kind of jumping ahead of the game. Probably hoping we would read it so we'd have some insightful commentary. But <laughs> we're not going to do that. No. Or from Mark Sweeney Jr. Uh, regarding Thunderbolt. Because I had, I was looking at the comic book database. I was like, wait a minute. Th- Peter Cannon Thunderbolt was in J- America versus the JSA? It didn't make any sense. And he wrote back, he goes, I think you're totally right about JSA Thunderbolt confusion. Seems like someone at the comic book database was confused when adding characters to the America versus JSA series. Oh, he put V JLA, JSA series. That's kind of funny. Uh, and last day's JSA special. The Peter Cannon character seemed to be added instead of uh, Johnny Thunder's genie friend. P.S. Peter Cannon hung out with Justice League's Europe and Task Force for a short while, where he acquired a new Eastern influence costume and a short ponytail. Aha, the or, ah, the nineties. Um, I completely forgot about that. Yes, he absolutely was part of that JLA era, and uh, yes, his ponytail was ridiculous. Uh, got some nice comments from our buddy Michael Bailey. And he just talked about how, um, followed up on the Superwoman commentary. We've gotten a lot of comments, by the way, from various folks about the different Superwomen and um, different versions of that. So thank you. Kyle Benning wrote in about Terry Beattie and said he would be the co-creator of DC's Wild Dog shortly after his terrible trio entry. And he would eventually become a regular artist in the Batman animated series comics in the 1990s and early 2000s as both a penciler and inker. And he's currently writing and drawing the Phantom comic strip. Which is good for him. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, regarding my comments about Dick Dillon, he says, Dick Dillon was a machine, that is no doubt. But don't forget that Kirby drew as many as four ongoing books a month and burned during his prime was penciling as many as three a month at times while writing others and doing covers for other books as well. Jeez. When Byrne was at Marvel, he penciled three to four books a month pretty regularly, which given the level of detail and dynamic storytelling Byrne did is pretty amazing. Just a random example of how Byrne was still trending out an incredible workload at the end of the 80s are the issues cover dated May 1989. That month has him both writing and penciling Starband 19, West Coast Avengers 44, Sensational She-Hulk 1, as well as penciling Ruby's Simonson written New Mutant 75. He also penciled the cover to Marvel Comics number 18 and wrote Batman number 433, which is penciled by Gemma Apparel. What a workload. Good God. That's a lot of stuff. Almost makes me forgive him for being such an asshat. So, um, 
Joe X drops some knowledge here. We talked about Henry Bismuth, and we were trying to figure out who he was in the last episode. Well, he, he drew the drew the Tala listing. Thank you. Right. Yes, yeah. and he, Stranger film. He found him. He says he was a French medical student who quit to be an artist and studied under John Buscema, uh, which would explain how he got to draw the Who's Who page. So, very cool. Now, a couple other people jumped in with that same information, but Joe was the first one I happened to see. Yep. So, thank you for that, Joe. And he says there were, he, he also talks about there were a couple different tattooed men. And uh, he said, let's see, uh, the last, latest one is Mark Richards, whose son was killed by Slipknot, <laughs> which caused him to join up with Deathstroke and help kill the Ryan Troy Adam. Slipknot! By the way, you know, we should mention at some point, um, and maybe this is a fire and water thing. I don't know if you've heard about this yet, this whole convergence thing they're doing. But DC is going to publish a whole bunch of comic books that take place in the pre-New 52 universe. The universe that we loved before the, yeah. the New 52. I mean, I've been saying for a couple of years this was coming, that DC was going to try and do a short-term capitalization on the pre-New 52 universe, and sure enough, it's happening. Exactly like I thought. And uh, But... The Ryan Troy Adams going to play a role, so that's why it's worth mentioning. So, and they're going to suspend all their other books for two months. That's correct. Yeah. So I don't know. We'll have to talk about that on a firewater. I think so. Heard from our buddy Jeff R. He is the one who always comes up with egregious emissions. He said, uh, "If you." He, he, he took issue with the amount of places in the previous issue. But he says if you're going to do places and you miss one, you should have done Tacron Galtos, which is the Legion prison world, but is also around in the 20th century. He says, oh, here we go. He says, which, although it's a Legion thing, was about to be established as a thing in the modern-day DC universe as well, although I'm not sure when the first 20th century appearance actually was. So We heard from our buddy Philemon, who cracks me up. Because Philemon, he's freaking nuts. Every month, he comes up with the most contrary things to any sort of logic. And and I laugh so hard. Anyway, he says, your in-stock trades recommendation, Shag. You forgot the most important thing to happen during that part of Wolfman's run. That's right. If you buy the New Teen Titans Omnis number two, you get the first appearance of Jericho. (laughs) I think that's the one thing everyone wants to forget from that omnibus, my friend. You're so confused. Uh, He says... Steve Lytle's art on Botellas and Timberwolf is really awesome. He's criminally underrated and could be mentioned in the same category as George Perez and Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his name. I will say, you are absolutely correct on that. Good job, Philemon. You, you were taking your meds when you were at that line. Because, yeah, I'm going to make the same comment for the Ten-Eyed Man that I did for Signal Man in the previous episode. This is a must-buy character for me. This guy's is five and a half shades of awesome. <laughs> and then he goes on to mention the, uh, the part about the Batman Brave and the Bold. And then uh, he goes, Terminator, yet another appearance of Jericho. This issue is quickly becoming my favorite. <laughs> it last issue is like one of the weakest sauced issues in the whole run. So that just cracks me up. I love it, Philemon. Keep it, keep it coming, man. You're, you're scrawling on dirty napkins in bathrooms. I love it, brother. Uh, from Anthony Durso, a.k.a. The Toy Room, regarding the cover. The glory days of the covers are behind who's who at this point. It's all downhill from here. I noticed he liked to give the artist free reign with the who's who covers and entries, but I think it would have been worthwhile to have George Perez do some quick thumbnails for each cover to at least get everyone on the same page. I agree with that. I just think Perez was just too busy. But I, as we talked about earlier in the episode, I think Barreto does a good job here. I wish they had brought him back in the next two issues because he doesn't. this is the only one he did. Yeah. It was a nice cover, though. So, yeah. 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 So we'll have to see if those subsequent ones are, are a letdown or not. He also helps us out with the Henry Business information. And um, 
he makes an inter- interesting observation. He talks about Tamaran has a page here. Goes an unnecessary entry, and yet Gotham City and Metropolis get snubbed. Yeah, I think we talked about that in previous episodes. But every time I have that realization, I'm just amazed. I'm like, yep. there's no Gotham City entry. <laughs> Gotham um, has its own TV show. Right. Exactly. Well, you know, the Tamaran series coming from CBS in the fall. Um, <laughs> then he talks about Terminator. He goes, I think they started referring to him more as Deathstroke once the Schwarzenegger Terminator films became more popular, which is kind of a, a, a agreed upon, accepted thing. But then he says, at this point of who's who's listing, the original James Cameron movie was only three years old, which kind of blows me away because that movie feels like a million years ago. Yet these comics don't. So I was like, oh, yeah, okay. And The Terminator was not a hit when it came out. Well, right. I mean, it made some money, but it wasn't it, – it grew over time. I think that's the point he's making is that at yeah. this point it wasn't a big hit. It wasn't until yeah. they got closer to 92's uh, Terminator 2 that things changed. Right. So a terrible trio. This is one of the kapow moments of the issue for me. I love obscure Batman villains, and this does the trick. Whew, I agree. That, that page is just gorgeous and yep. freaking creepy. And uh, he dropped some knowledge on the humor characters that I mentioned. He says, Wendy and Willie were actually reworked reprints of previous issues of Many Loves of Dobie Gillis, where art and script were changed in order to avoid paying licensing fees. <gasps> they debuted in Showcase 81 and later graduated to their own series, which ran four issues. Dobie Gillis? Really? I didn't know that. I, that I did not know. I'm, I'm, I'm only vaguely – I'm aware of the existence of the DC humor characters, but I haven't done a lot of reading on them. So that's, that's a very interesting little factoid. Well, do you know some more interesting factoids about Dobie Gillis and humor characters? No. Okay, I got to drop this. Sorry. Okay. Um, they were in development of a Dobie Gillis cartoon, animated cartoon. And they did all these character designs, and they were ready to go. And for whatever reason, it fell apart. And the people who designed the cartoon said, well, we've done all this work. Just add a friggin' dog, and we'll make them like, go solve crimes. That's ah. how Scooby-Doo was born. Look at that. That makes Fred sense. Fred is Dobie Gillis. Shaggy is Manergy Krebs. Sure. Velma is Thelma. And Daphne's just the hot chick whoever Dobie was dating that episode. And the dog huh? was just added as a like throwaway thing. And that became the Scooby-Doo cartoon. Look at that. And that's why I've used uh, the alias Manergy Krebs several times. It's because <laughs> uh, that was where Shaggy came from. So Interesting. Yep. Wolfgang Hartz said, I have a question about covering the 8788 updates. The final volumes of both series have an appendix in the last pages. Will those be covered too? Yes, uh, they'll be covered probably in the same way as we do letters pages, where we'll just read the ones that we think are interesting enough yeah. to talk about. Yeah. So, heard from our buddy Frank. Uh, he says, I'm going to surprise everyone, myself included. This is Diablo Frank, by the way, of the Marvel Superheroes podcast. Because I'm going to surprise everyone, myself included, and defend the cover. I'm not a Joe Staten fan, but I respect the choice to forego the always shaky conceit that all the title characters are supposed to exist in the same space and offer instead a dynamic collage of figures varied by their relative representation in the DCU. I very much prefer Deathstroke blasting through 20% of the back cover at a unique angle to John Byrne giving Superman a static Ohatmu entry that takes up 75% of the cover with a prefunctory additional doodles in the margin. Truth be told, I find Staten's efforts more interesting than most of the other non-Perez covers, though I confess Mike DiCarlo's ink surely made it a lot more palatable to me than it would have been otherwise. There's also a lot of Staten-y characters to work with, the new Doom Patrol, the Atari Force, the Garish Charlton Titans, and uh, Garish Charlton Titans and Legion types. Interesting. Hmm. Someone had to stand up for Joe Staten's cover, so there you yeah. go, Frank. Uh, he writes, I bought exactly one issue of All-Star Squadron, brand new off the spinner rack at Gemco, 
And that happened solely because it featured the tarantula and that spiffy costume done by Jerry Ordway on the cover and interiors. Tarantula is such a snazzy looking character that I wanted to read stories about him and have, but they've never come within a football field of matching his visual pizzazz. <laughs> I've heard that no reproductions of copyrighted material bit before, and it is true because you had to pay Kinko's for the facsimile. However, Rob is correct that the Kinko staff had the moral character of an opium den, especially on the late shift. <laughs> Completely and utterly true. The spec miniseries sounds Vertigo-ish, and it could have been a contender. Thank you, Frank. Given that both Tarantula and Silver Scarab were revealed derivative, it's too bad the former didn't replace the latter among Infinity Inc., where lack of period verisimilitude wouldn't interfere with the swell-designed reception. Also, Silver Scarab's look could have been simplified for the 40s, and then he could have been killed in crisis, and maybe someone would have been given any kind of a fig that he ever existed. <laughs> so have you come to accept that it is illegal to go to Kinko's and photocopy stuff? Uh, all I know is they never told me that that it was, and okay. we did it. We did it constantly, so you could see why I assumed that it was not okay. because it, it. You know, I, I, they never told me it was illegal to do. Now, if somebody had brought in like in a, a book and said, you know, copy every page, we might have said we really can't do this. But people brought in stuff all the time out of magazines, and we and we never. I never saw anybody say no. So. Interesting. Okay. Because I I went in and I got like uh, some Doom Patrol covers. Some of the. I can't remember who was doing the Doom Patrol covers back then. It was. They weren't McKean, were they? Uh, Uh, I don't remember. I can't remember who it was. Anyway. I think it might have been Tom Taggart. Maybe so. The ones that, you know, from Morrison's run. I got a couple of those made into like small mini posters that Mm -hmm. could be done. And I got like a a couple of like wizard pages made into posters and stuff like that. And I would do it at Kinko's. And then it was giving me a hard time about it. But anyway. Mm Uh, he also mentions, I think Rob is wrong about thinking he's wrong about the illustrated man influencing the tattooed man. I read that sentence five times. I can't figure out what Frank is saying. He might be saying you're right. I think so. <laughs> okay. I don't know. It's like a double negative, so I'm not sure. I'm not it's sure. Frank. It's, just, it's supposed right. to make your head hurt. And then later on he says, Richard Howell drew Thanagar. No more need be said. Rob not knowing Therok speaks volumes about his love of the Legion. Well, you know, like Therok, like, guys, I love Legion. And I, I think I've said before, I have like... What was it, like two hundred Legion comics or something like that? I don't know that Therox ever appeared in like yeah. I mean, really? Am I supposed to know? I'm really. Come on. I mean, in my like I said, I you know I've read very little with him, and I've read a lot of Legion comics. So anyway, um, this is the Thinker was one of the very rare supervillains in the Adams Rogues Gallery and fought both Adams in the Silver Age under Gil Kane's pencil, though the costume design department that was probably perhaps not beneficial. But that explains why uh, both the Adams were shown in the Thinker thing, or, or am I imagining that? Uh, either way, the Thinker's interesting character. So. Uh, everyone in the comments references Time Commanders being a member of the time-themed group of villains during the lead-up to Zero Hour, specifically in the issues of Showcase, because no one has anything else to say about the character. <laughs> well, not me. I can point to that team also turning up in the issues of Team Titans. Wow, Frank, you're really selling that. <laughs> really selling it. Um, he says, I also feel it is important that I admit that Rob was right, again, Ugh. about Ohatmu being more boring to talk about than who's who. Oh, okay. we, we recorded, we, we recorded a first try at an Ohatmu podcast a few months back in the same style as this one for the Marvel Superheroes podcast he's talking about, and it sucked worse than episode number six. <laughs> the characters just stand there against a mono, non-chromatic background, and the first edition isn't even drawn by well-known regarded artists. We're still going to do an Ohatmu podcast in the future, but we've had to radically alter the format to make it work. <laughs> by the way, you can find the Marvel Superheroes podcast on iTunes now yep. as well. So I've been binge listening to that. It's a... Uh, 
I love listening to Frank. I love Frank so much. I want him back on the show soon. So I still like angry at him for not being in the Martian Manhunter episode. So I want Aquaman to drop a whale on that one co-host of his, though. <laughs> It's a specific. In case you're wondering where Rob's going with that, folks, he, uh, they took they took quite a few shots at Aquaman, on that, or that guy did. So. That guy's got quite a potty mouth. <laughs> because his name's a legal machine, if I remember right. All right, Jeff R. talked about Carol Ferris. We said, is, is she the only person in Who's Who to have two entries? And Jeff R. sort of tried to like talk it through. I think he was talking to himself, sort of like, uh, <laughs> do you want to be a millionaire sort of thing? Or I, who wants to be a millionaire where you talk through a question? He says, Mr. Element and Dr. Alchemy got separate entries. And then I'm thinking, well, that was really two different dudes. Because whereas poor Alfred only got one, which was under the Outsider. Other possibilities come to mind from that era, Robin and Nightwing. Well, those were really two different dudes. Those two different guys. And Princess Projector and Sensor Girl were only covered once. Well, that was one person. And Reflecto didn't even get an entry, which is a semi-shame in the series where Lord Satanus and Cyrene didn't share half a page, but would have been problematic for these types of reasons. So... He just kind of goes in a circle, I think, prove my point. I think that's what he did. Thanks, Jeff. Appreciate that. Uh, her from Martin Gray. Uh, I've always found Raja Ghul and her daughter Talia excruciatingly boring. Just a couple of generic Bond villains who tend to take bats away from Gotham. Martin, I agree. Uh, he also said, so hello. Batman fans just lost their mind. <laughs> he said, hello. Rob has to be right. <laughs> <laughs> Martin Gray. He's this <laughs> cheerio, pip pip, and all that. Um, uh, I believe Martin Gray's a chimney, chimney sweep. Uh, no, he says <laughs> Rob. Because <laughs> if Mary he sell, Poppins he sells is, fish and ships down if by Mary the tube, Poppins but... is right, all people, all men in England are chimney sweeps. Um, anyway, he says Rob has to be right again. Another person saying I'm right about a tattooed man and illustrated man connection, giving Julie Schwartz was Ray Barry's Ray Bradbury's first agent. Uh, That's right. I did know that. I forgot to mention that at the time, but I did know that. Old Abel Tarrant is pretty much a one-off among male DC characters, having two very different, but equally hot looks. (laughs) That second costume is up there with the original Black Condor and Firebrand for swoonsome sexiness. Uh, he says, this is the only podcast ever to mention kerning, meaning uh, about the letters and fonts and stuff. Be proud. So, I am, Martin. Well, I am. well done, Rob. That, that was sort of unique. Uh, he says, oh, Rob, Terra Man. Okay. We gave Terra Man a lot of shit in the last episode, okay? <laughs> Said that like his entry reads really cool for a ridiculous concept. So he writes the most logical sentence I've ever read about. Terra Man. He goes, oh, Rob, Terra Man is a space cowboy with a winged horse. How is that not awesome? Now, if that was the entire sales pitch that you gave me, a space cowboy with a winged horse, I would probably get on board. Because I'd probably be like, that is so ridiculous. It's brilliant. Do it. You know, but like what they ended up getting, not so much. So (laughs) good pitch, bad execution. Rob talked about that before, too. Anyway. Yep. And then he uh, was kind enough to point out that Hyathis showed up in uh, Digital Sensation Comics number 14. And then uh, Ange, is it Ange? Or Toy Room? Ange, isn't it? Proceeded to then lose his mind. I was so excited about that. Uh, Earth 2 Chris said, way late to the party on this one, without much to add. As much as I appreciate how Perez draws Wonder Girl and Lilith, I'm going to thumb my nose at Shag and say Starfire is still the hottest Titan. Perez's Starfire helped assure my straightness. <laughs> well, you know what? It, that is completely fair. Somebody needs to stand up for Starfire because, I mean, she is the hot chick in the in the series, and and most people did think she was hot. I'm probably an outlier by not thinking she's hot. So good, good on you, Chris. Well done. You guys have to listen to his podcast, the uh, Supermates podcast. Yeah. 
because uh, there's a point in an episode ago where uh, Chris is doing his Solomon Grundy voice upon my request. <laughs> and he's like reading letters in the Solomon Grundy voice, which is awesome. And then Cindy, his wife, makes him an offer saying she will, quote unquote, do that thing he likes, unquote, <gasps> if he stops doing the Solomon Grundy voice. And then Chris kept doing it. <laughs> I actually had to write in and say, Chris, don't do that. Don't. Don't deny yourself whatever that thing is by just doing this. I couldn't, you know. Maybe she meant bake a cake. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> uh, she is so naughty. <laughs> she's, a, she's a hoot, that one. Um, and uh, Chris also gave me credit for the Batman Brave and the, Brave and the Bold sting at the end. Thank you, Chris. I was so, I just, I, I was so proud of that one because it was like the perfect thing ever to run for that episode. It really was. It really was. So, uh, Van Z wrote in and said, I can't wait for, oh, this is after we promoted you, so I can't wait for this one. I love the Tarantula Killer c- character in that ca- awesome costume. I love this issue because it was the last one I needed for a full run and couldn't wait to read the entries for Tarantula, Terra, and Timberwolf when I finally got it. Your podcast is very enjoyable, but you guys are killing me. Terra Man was, aw- oh, this is after he was listening. Your podcast is very enjoyable, but you guys are killing me. Terra Man was awesome in the 70s and early 80s. Awesome, buddy. Go for it. Love it. <laughs> if you will listen, if everyone will listen to that episode, you'll recall I said that Terra Man and Ten Eyed Man should be the villains in the next Batman v Superman movie. So I know what you're talking about. <laughs> okay. Uh, we heard from Michelle Michelle Fief, uh, writer of the All New Ultimates, and he also did some research on Henry Bismuth. Thank you for that. We heard from our buddy Zeb Oswalt. He says, I tried to do fan art of this cover. Here's the front page. It took me three days to draw ink it. And he did draw, uh, a, you know, basically did his own version of the cover. Pretty cool. Amazing. And he came back to say, Tara, I know more from when she came back as a hero in the 90s Titans, but she was okay. Now, um, we didn't mention that at all last episode. I completely forgot that she came back as a member of the Team Titans. I had no knowledge of that at all. Which was an alternate future. And then later on, after Zero Hour, where time sort of corrected all that, she still stayed on and joined, I want to say the Teen Titans at that point, or whatever Titans version there was. And it was revealed that apparently somehow she was the original Terra still alive. So, but it was, but the sad part about it is that it sort of redeemed her, which I didn't really want them oh, to do. Oh, so. nah, I don't like that. Um, from Professor Alan Middleton, he says, I was interested in Rob's reaction to the 1980s comic thriller. I remember owning it when it came, I remember owning it when it came out, and I think I remember liking it, but I have no idea what happened in those stories. Based on Rob's comments, I wonder if I, if I had any idea what was happening in those books when I was reading them. <laughs> my main recollection is that they were on expensive paper and hyped. Beyond that, my mind is a blank. He says he found 12 issues recently in a quarter bins, and he's not had the courage to dig into them yet, much less podcast about them. But he's thinking about both of these things. He says, rest assuredly, if it goes badly, I'm blaming you too, but mainly Rob. Yay! I can, I can live with that. <laughs> uh, we got an email. This is an actual email from Jim Ball. And he says, wondering if you know of other Who's Who entries from other annuals or specials around the same time, if you plan to cover them. I'm not sure if it would be easy to find all these forgotten entries, but I think it would interest all your listeners. It may prompt them to find the issues to complete their Who's Who collections. Jim, yes, we, we have everything. We have everything, every Who's Who listing I think that DC has done, at least in the sort of classic Who's Who format. And we do plan to cover them all, even those like bonus pages in the backs of the annuals, all that stuff. We're going to be – God, we're committed to this. Well, where this started was he found um, some pages, and I guess it was the 1989 annuals is what it was. Uh, right, right. So he uh, – now, by the way, along those same lines, Travis Fowler, 
Um, I forgot to put this in the in the feedback because he he and I were just sending messages to each other on Facebook. I'm going to drive to his house, break into his house, and steal his three hardcover bound editions of Who's Who that that ba- <laughs> this bastard has done. And we communicated a while back, and I mean, I I don't think like. I, I think he probably had his own plan for this, but he, he's giving me a little bit of credit for some of the pages he stuck in there. But um, he, he added all kinds of extra stuff. It's got all the who's who's. It's got the 1989 who's who's. I mean, he's got it all in this collection, and it is wow. freaking cool. And seriously, buddy, I better not figure out what your address is, or you're going to be having to file a police report. I'm just saying. I shouldn't have put this on the air, damn it. Okay. <laughs> Uh, from David H. Gutierrez, he says, the Kinko's legal team and I will be in touch with Mr. Rob Kelly. <laughs> you know, considering what I know about what went on at Kinko's, I don't think they're coming after me. <laughs> Heard from Kenneth Spicer in reference to Tara. He goes, there does need to be a category called comic sociopaths what thinks they's hot. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, Robert Gross wrote to us, uh, and he says, uh, what you guys did in the Superman Who's Who episode, creating the own entry for Earth-1 Superman, that was genius. Uh, again, all that credit goes to Zoom Yakanori, not us. So I think I just said his name wrong again, didn't I? Zoom Yakanori. <sighs> that guy. All right. Heard from Dale Russell. Uh, he says, how can this issue be lackluster? It has the original Spider-Man. <laughs> so that cracked me up. David Sopko gave us a little bit of history. He says, I got into Who's Who when it started. I've been collecting comics for about two years at this point. When this started, I was ecstatic to learn about these all these characters, some of which I knew more than um, more that I really didn't, and I've read these books several times each, and in the Who's Who in the Legion possibly pushing hundreds of times. Mm. Uh, David, by the way, is one of our Legion of Super bloggers, and he's also a member of the Ultra Force Network. Or Ultraverse Network, by the way. Anyway, he, he sent us a why you got to laugh every time I say Ultraverse? Well, it's just the fact that you got the name wrong of your own show. Shut up. I hate you. Anyway, he sent us a copy of a cover to Legion of Super... Or, I'm sorry, uh, World's Finest, featuring Legion of Superheroes as they're battling the composite Superman. And he's been listening to Who's Who podcast and thought this cover would both uh, make you smile. It makes me groan. <laughs> Friggin' composite Superman. You know, what's happening is he's listening to the back catalog is what it is. And so he's, he's hitting us with all this old stuff. <laughs> and I wrote, composite Superman and Night Force on one cover. Could they fit any more fail on this cover? <laughs> Special guest appearance, Jericho. Right. <laughs> there you go, Philemon. He said, uh, we heard from Jay Bamberhill. He wrote, Tarantula's the star of this front cover. OMG! <laughs> Gregory Rougeau wrote in saying, these are all Twitter sort of things. He said, odd how Timberwolf appears to be the only one running away from the reader. I didn't notice that. That is interesting. No, I didn't notice that either. Pedro uh, Cabazulo wrote in saying, poor Duella. And he's referencing last issue with the Titans. I forgot to mention, in the Two-Face entry, they also say, you know, uh, something to the effect of, like, regardless of reports, Two-Face does not have a daughter. Or something like that. I was like, aww. Um, I stumbled across on this guy's blog. He was covering who's who, and he was going issue by issue. He was covering who's who, kind of similar to what we're doing. And um, he was just doing blog posts about it, though, and giving very short bursts. His name's Mitchell, and it's comiclists.wordpress.com. I think he's already, like, almost done. He's, like, way into the updates already. But anyway, I just mentioned to him about our podcast, and he wrote back just saying thanks, and he's going to check it out. And he says, I know. He goes, and I thought I was obsessed. <laughs> Tony D, uh, he noted that on Monday, November 10th, it was the 75th anniversary of the debut of Johnny Thunder, The Flash, Hawkman, and The Whip. 
<laughs> Very cool. Nice observation. And then we got, well, we didn't get this message directly, but it was on his Facebook page and we corresponded about it, Jerry Ordway. We talked about, um, you know, a while back we did Who's Who, issue number 19. And that was that cover by Ernie Cologne that had Red Tornado and the and Robin, and it was very confusing about who was the lead character and everything. We speculated about, you know, why that cover happened, and then we figured out that Jerry Ordway had done a cover that didn't get printed, and we speculated why Jerry's cover had been refused. Well, Jerry addresses it. He goes, my cover was rejected because I used a collage layout, like on the Sternanko History of Comics, rather than placing everyone in real space, and that broke the format. Amusingly, subsequent covers use collage format, so maybe I put that in their heads. <laughs> Ernie Cologne had to do that substitute cover for Who's Who pretty quickly, I'd guess. Um, the call from the editor was something like this. It looks great, but you have to do it over. Well, I spent several days penciling that cover, so I said, sorry, no. But this stuff happens. Marvel commissioned an X-Factor cover for me, and I followed specific directions on the thing, only to have them to have them not use it. And they pointed out the reason and conceded that I drew what they asked for. So what can you do? <laughs> Well, when Jerry, the extraordinary Ordway, you know, tells you the, the real deal there, that's, that's pretty special. So, very yeah, cool. Yeah, awesome. Yep. Well, that is going to wrap it up. Rob, uh, why don't you tell, again tell the folks our Tumblr address where they can find uh, several entries from this one, uh, one including uh, Tommy Tomorrow? Also, <laughs> the multi yep. Uh Fireandwaterpodcast.tumblr.com, and the email address is firewaterpodcast at comcast.net. Perfect. And you can find me at firestormfan.com. You can also find me on social media as Firestorm Fan and our Facebook, Twitter, Google Plus, Instagram, and uh, Tumblr. And you can also find me over on the Ultraverse Network at ultraversepodcast.com. And you can also find me in the, helping out the Legion of Super Bloggers. Where can they find you, Rob? AquamanShrine.net, uh, Shrine on Facebook, Twitter, and uh, Google Plus. And we are still running our. Uh, Aquaman and the Others contest where you just have to take a photo of yourself reading an issue of Aquaman and the Others just in some interesting way. Um, I don't want to say how many entries we've gotten, but uh, if you send it an entry, you have a good chance of winning. So the, the entry and the prize is a signed copy of the first trade paperback uh, signed by Dan Jurgen. So get on it, people. Uh, the deadline for the picture is uh, January 1st, 2015. Pretty cool. All right. Well, folks, uh, until next time. Who's next? Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? Booster Boy and Booster Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, Hitchick and Arisia and Woozy Winks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC Who's Who. Oh man, we forgot Slipknot. Grundy, what's Luthor paying you for this? Money. Lots of it. As much as he's getting? I don't know. Look at all you've had to put up with. You should be getting more. More than me? Preposterous. 